There's a podcast that sure all the rock's heart is gold and they're climbing the stairway to eleven when they get there they know the record stores are all closed but online they can get what they came for Welcome to Stairway to Eleven. My name is George. This is John. And I'm TR. Welcome back to episode four. We're still here. (laughs) Before we get into things, I want to mention that we do have a Facebook page and an Instagram page that you can go follow us. And, you know, aside from the other things that you might find on a social media page, there's also like extras from the episode, pictures of vinyl and interesting memorabilia and stuff. So, Go check us out there, follow us, and you'll also know when episodes come out, things like that. I also want to mention that John and I, our other podcast, Metalheads Podcast, just released a new episode this week as well. So if you are into the heavier side of things, go check out Metalheads Podcast as well. All right, today we have three new albums for you to delve into. And we're going to start off with my pick. And so this time, I chose to torture John and TR with Concrete Blonde and their album Bloodletting. Released May 15th, 1990, this was Concrete Blonde's third album. Hailing from Hollywood, California, the band mixed rock, alternative, punk, and goth into what I consider a fairly unique sound. Johnette Napolitano, Napolitano, it, her name is tough. Johnette Napolitano. Aside from having, oh, I, I even wrote that down. Aside from having a challenging name to pronounce, shows her vocal prowess on this album. Going back and forth between rockers and ballads. I've been a huge fan of this album since it was released. And this is my favorite of their eight albums and possibly on my list of all time favorite albums, period. My next favorite album by them would probably be their first album, the self-titled album, which gives a really good taste of late 80s Hollywood with less hairspray. They even do a great cover of George Harrison's Beware of Darkness. But back to Bloodletting. This album also contained the band's biggest chart hit, which we will get into later. Johnette said this album came at the end of a particularly bad period of time for her and the band. So due to that, the album is a bit darker and cathartic. There's a lot of melancholy on this album, so sorry, TR. Alas, I don't think the band ever received the the massive credit they should have received for their catalog. And as far as I know, the band has been on hiatus for a while now, the last decade at least. I was lucky enough to catch them on the tour for Mexican Moon a few years later. I saw them at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was a killer set. And that was when I learned that James Mankey played guitar without a pick, which I found very interesting, given the style of music. Anywho, do you guys have any comments before we get into the tracks? So this, my only comment on this, like just overarching is, I found it interesting that, you know, in episode three, we covered Judas Priest's... Sad Wings of Destiny? Sad Wings, yes, sorry. (laughs) There's kind of space there. Yeah, and the producer and recorder, recording engineer on that album was Chris Sangaridis. Ah, 
And he was also the producer and recording engineer on this album. I did which notice I that. I think was an interesting tie between the two episodes. So that was totally why I did it. Totally. I'm sure. <laughs> awesome. All right, then let's go ahead and get into the album proper. First song on the album is the title track, Bloodletting, parentheses, The Vampire Song. I like every song on this album, but the title track is definitely like top three or four for me. I feel like it takes some inspiration from the Anne Rice vampire novels. I love the ominous groove of the song and the gang vocals of the chorus. Not only is it catchy, but it sounds like something people would be singing walking down the street during Mardi Gras before, you know, vampire feasting on hapless tourists. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a unique song on the album and a total classic. Her vocals are amazing. So did you like steal my notes from this? Because you basically said almost everything that I wrote down. Actually, I had Jay do it for me. (laughs) He did it again. (laughs) I was, I had the same feel that it has that kind of, I don't want to say it's like a jangle, but it has that kind of twang to the sound that makes me feel like I would be walking in New Orleans at night. It just has that vibe. It's, it's, it's I, like, you know, there's probably a style, like a name for it. Like, you know, oh, it's a blah, blah in, in blah, blah time or a, a waltz or, a, you know, there's probably a name for that type of feel. And I just don't know what it is. Yeah, it just it was it just gave me I the words that I came up with. Obviously, you mentioned Gothic, but it had just a little bit of a rockabilly Mm-hmm. vibe to it but a, a modern take on it not like the stray cats who were trying to almost emulate the bands from the 50s yeah but with a little more oomph this had more of a, a 90s alternative vibe to it so yeah her vocals are amazing on the whole album because she's got such a deep and like you said sultry voice it's not operatic which makes me like it a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a cool opening track i liked it awesome so I wrote like that it was quirky. Definitely got a vampire vibe. I didn't like the gang vocals that much, but I get like how they fit the song. You suppose. But <laughs> it, this, I'll say this, that I liked other tracks on this album a lot better. All right. Fine though. I see how it is. <laughs> All right. So track two is called The Sky is a Poisonous Garden. This song kicks things into a higher gear, one of the heavier songs on the album. It has a sort of frantic, chaotic, and dangerous feel to it. I've always kind of wondered what the title means. I'm not really sure, but it's a pretty cool song, whatever she was thinking of. Yeah, that's about all I have to say about that. That's it? <laughs> wow. I, I thought. Keep in mind, I, I had COVID all week, and I, I know I'm joking. <laughs> I don't have as many notes as I might. Well, we're going to pick you up, George. Fine. Thank you. So the people who haven't listened to the album that much before or at all are the ones that are going to have to talk about it the most, is what you're saying. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So no. this is yeah, I agree. An up tempo song. It's got a a little bit of a, a touch of post punk, I think, to it, and the yeah. alternative vibe. And it seems to me that this would be a really cool song to see live that you would really get into this. You could almost monster it, this, you know, it, it has just a certain kind of tempo to it that, yeah, you, you want to let loose a little bit. And I would say the guitar solo was bluesy, but he taps into that sound a little bit. He's none of his guitar solos on paper seem to match 
the music, the way he plays, <laughs> which is, I think, really unique about his playing because there's a few songs later that we'll get to that. I always, it almost felt like if it was anybody else trying to play it, other than the person writing the music, it just wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to pull it off. And I think the fact that you mentioned that he doesn't pick, he uses his fingers, mm-hmm. he gets some really cool kind of harsh sounds that seem to match the songs that he's playing. And so, and I'm not a guitar player, but I noticed right off the bat, every solo just, especially for this time period, early nineties, alternative rock was all about no guitar solos uh-huh. at all. Yeah. Minus like Jerry Cantrell. <laughs> right. You know? And it's quite cool to hear him playing things and not just playing your standard guitar solos. He's, I wouldn't say he's experimenting, but he's doing some kind of different things. Not unusual. So he's not the first person to do it, but He's just doing some things that kind of make him stand out his playing style uh-huh. with the type of music that they're playing. Well, keep, I, yeah. keep in mind, this came out in 90. It's their third album. So they, you know, they started in the eighties when no, solos were that. a thing. So, mm. yeah, of course. Yeah. It, and uh, no, it's a good second song follow up and it does change the pace right away from the first song. Yeah. And definitely, you know, more night imagery, in the lyrics and even in the vibe of the song references to the Raven. Mm-hmm. My only thing is I just, and I think it's the, it, obviously it's that alternative style of uh, sound. They're just, to me, there just wasn't enough bottom end to the guitar. Like it was just, there was no, like the tone I was looking for more like a thicker tone, but I get like, that's not what this, kind of music is about like that the, the tone is like what it is because that's the type of music it is mm-hmm. so so that left me wanting a little but but overall you know cool vibe the curse of the guitarist mm-hmm. every guitar player i know yeah every single one <laughs> i don't calling all you out i don't yeah. yeah but you play drums too george so it's my, our friend Joe is the same exact way. He will not like anything if he does not like the sound and tone of the guitar. Yeah. It yeah. could be the greatest song ever in that nah, shit. Don't like it. Don't like it. <laughs> I know Joe and I love Joe because of that. It's um, the same all yeah. the time. It's true. Every time. I can't help it. No, it's not. I'm not singling out. I'm saying it's literally almost every guitarist I know. uh, But you know what? You're true to form. Yeah, you're not wrong. (laughs) It's true. Like I, I have in my mind a a certain feeling of what the tone should be, or what I feel is like an ideal guitar tone, and the things that aren't that, you know, end up just somehow, you know, taking a, a lower level to me, but. Um, Here's what, let me break it down for everyone out there who's not a guitar player. These people that we're talking about, these guitarists, quote unquote, <laughs> are looking for the brown sound. They <laughs> <laughs> yeah. want the brown sound yes. in everything. If you everything. don't know what the brown sound is, yeah, go look, look it up. up Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> it's there. This is this is the uh, El Dorado of guitar tones. Like <laughs> Grail. It is. And no yeah. one... People can get close to mimicking it, but no one can actually recreate it. And it's the funniest thing in the world. I know one guitarist who hasn't said much about it, and I'm not dropping names, but TR and I know a guitarist who plays in a band from Europe 
and he loves a lot of music and I've never heard him ever say anything like this. And he's a very good guitarist. Don't mm. want to derail us any more than this. So I'll just stop right there. <laughs> all yes. right. That's all the comments I have. <laughs> so track three is Caroline. And this takes the intensity level back down again. And we end up in pseudo ballady territory. It combines melody and melancholy to create a pretty catchy song. I felt like this one had more of a post-punk feel than some of the other tracks. You know, it's very chill. It's melodic. You know, it's not... I like all the songs on the album, but it's not the song that I would be like, oh yeah, I want to hear Caroline. When I hear it, I'm like, oh yeah, good tune. But... This is funny because this is where I started to like the album. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) No, it's true. Like when I listened to this, it was like, oh, this is, this song seems much more suited to her vocals. I like the groove of it. The guitar tones were better on this song. I like the solo on this song. I like the whole mood of it. I just felt like, oh, this, like when I heard this song, I felt like, okay, this is what they really should sound like. You know, the other two songs seemed like they were like, I don't know, a little out of place or or something. When I heard this, I felt like, okay, this is really, this to me is how they are supposed to sound. Even though I didn't know anything about this band. Honestly, you're right. I mean, of the first three songs, this is probably more representative of them overall than the first two songs. Oh, okay. You know, bloodletting is just completely different than everything. Okay. Uh, Sky's a poisonous, poisonous garden is heavier than most of their stuff. So, so you're not wrong. And the funny thing is normally I would probably prefer like rocking and heavy and that, but like, I don't know. Her voice was so beautiful on this song that I just felt like, I don't know. I just felt like this was, a, you know, a much better manifestation of the whole band. All right. I'll take it. Yeah. So I like this song, but to me, this is the most dated song on the album. <laughs> this sounds like the early 90s, meaning if you didn't tell me who this was and you just threw it on, I would immediately think back to that period. And so and that, that's not a knock on it. It just hell. If I hear a yes song with a lot of keyboards and a lot of John Anderson meandering off into the world of John Anderson, I'm going to say that's got to be the seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, it dates right. it. So most music is how, dated in some fashion. Just, yeah. It's a product I, of its time. Mm-hmm. That's yes. And that's to take it a little further to me. This is definitely a product of that period because there's still songs from bands that you hear today. I could hear a Motorhead song today and still think, man, that, that would still kick ass today. It would still sound like it came out today. Mm-hmm. You know, it just depends mm-hmm. on who, what it is yeah. and the style. So, and I agree with everything you guys have said. It's three songs in a row, and all three have different styles mm-hmm. right off the bat. Yeah. And so, I think that kind of gives the idea that this album is not going to be the same song over and over again, which. I don't necessarily mind that because sometimes if you do it in the right way, you can venture off a little bit and still the the bottom line is still you still the band. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was good. I liked it. It's the first of the uh, three name songs on the album. We'll get to a few more. Yeah. But, uh, All right. Next we have track four darkening of the light. This is another one of my favorite tunes off the album. It has a mid paced stilted carnival vibe. And it's chock full of hooks that get this song stuck in my head every time I hear it. 
and not just the lyrics, but some of the musical passages as well get stuck in my head. It's very melodic and catchy, but dark and ominous, but pretty too, you know? So I don't know. I'm curious what TR thought of this one. So, so I really liked where this was going because again, it's another slower song. You're hearing her vocals more like, you know, you can really hear her voice um, come through on this. And I, I really like these slower songs. I feel like it just, it complements the band. These songs really sounded much better to me than the, the first two. And I felt like, I agree, George, this was kind of like there was a mystery to this song. And I felt like it was a Dio song. <laughs> yeah, like, I, 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 could, like I, I could totally hear like, that. Not so much the call and response. Shine on, friend. Yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> but like that, that, that kind of that chord progression of the melody mm-hmm. sounded like something Dio would do, and even the, even some of the like the lyrics are Dio esque in terms of like you know the mystery and just like it's unknown and I don't know. It just sounded like. It, it, obviously, it's not like a Dio song, but to me, it felt like one, and there was a feeling like. Yeah, I could see Dio doing something like this, you know, in the way it's delivered and the kind of the style of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I like this tune. I felt it was like a nice follow up to Caroline because I felt like, OK, now I felt like, OK, now this is I'm liking this. This is like what I feel like this band should be about. <laughs> I won't disagree with that. One of my faves, John. I'm definitely hearing this song different than you guys. There's no doubt about that. I did not get any Dio vibe whatsoever. <laughs> I actually didn't like the dueling vocals at the beginning. It's to not be honest, dueling, with you. it's like echoed. Yeah, but it comes off like it's dueling now, and and I wasn't so big on that myself. Now that doesn't mean I didn't like the song. I just didn't particularly care for that vocal effect that that she used. And I actually, and I'm not saying there's anything folky about the song, but his guitar playing again just made me think of some folky stuff a little bit. It's a little jangly. Yeah, just a little, you know, and again, that's his style. And that's, I like that about the way he plays on this. Now, this is coming from a non-guitar, so apparently I won't know anything I'm talking about, but that's just how I hear it. So um, I'm poking fun at myself. I'm not saying anything about anybody. I'm making fun of myself. It's a decent song overall. I thought the chorus was cool, but it didn't. I feel like there's other songs on the album that are much darker than this one. Just my take, so. To be sure. So, yeah. So I think you just tapped into something there. The folky kind of thing, right? Because in some ways I felt like there was a Richie Blackmore thing to this. That's why I think the Mm. Dio piece of it, like I I was thinking like from that, like a rainbow angle, not like necessarily like a Dio solo thing, but obviously like, okay. Like the the first rainbow album. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's like a kind of Renaissance fairish. Yeah, exactly. And that was where I was coming from with that. So, um, okay. So I'm glad glad you you clarified that for me. Cause like I couldn't put my finger on it, but that was, that's what it really is. I think, Mm -hmm. but the song's not folky. It's just his playing. He does a few things that makes you think of that. And George, you, you hit it on the head. The, the word jangle too. He jangles a little bit when he plays, which is that kind of homeland, not homeland, what's it called? Heartland type music, mm-hmm. you know, like the Tom Petty type thing, the right. birds, you know, that jangle sound. And he just taps a little bit in that and gives it that folky kind of vibe, which 
I like that part of it a lot, actually. I, I dug that I picked up on that. But again, we all hear things differently too. So I mean, play this for somebody on the other podcast and they might hear something else. Yeah. All right. So track five is called I Don't Need a Hero. It's a slower song with a lot of attitude. <laughs> a breakup song where she asserts her independence and declares that unlike Bonnie Tyler, she doesn't need a hero to rescue her <laughs> not surprisingly it's also pretty catchy at least i thought it was it's slower which i don't know maybe that puts it in tr land but it's got a little bit of a snarl so maybe it doesn't but i dig it it's, it's somewhere on the middle for me i would say yeah th- this one this is my favorite song on the album yeah middle or favorite you know one of those because it's so <laughs> dark and she is angry without it's controlled anger though almost like She's past her issue, and now she's taking assertion. She's taking. She's moving herself on. first, yes. And I kind of dug that. I I dig the kind of dark, haunting vibe, especially with the drums. There's not much to them. They're just they're placed in a certain way. Everything's subtle and unassuming when you listen, but there's little slight changes, which, by the way, is going to be a hint for this whole podcast for me. <laughs> subtle and unassuming. Everything is sparse. You know. When I hear the guitarist work on this, it makes me, I now know who I was thinking of when I, and I just, it dawned on me as we started, I, I think of Chris Isaac a little bit, the way he played, mm. you know, oh. and he was, he's from around that period, that same kind That's of sparse, deserty, twangy sound a little bit. Yeah. And he does that a little in this song, but I, I do love the darkness and the hauntingness. And I like, I like the pacing of the album up to this point. Mm. And, and I know some people may not like, all the differences between the, all five songs while it's still the same band are all slightly different directional songs. Yeah. Even and, tonally too. Yes. And his playing, his solos, everything they're doing. And one last thing I will say also about her vocals, which I think she's great to be honest with you. Uh, but she does remind me of Linda Perry a little bit from four non blondes with that kind of mm-hmm. deeper sultry voice. Oh, you ruined it. I hate four non blondes. Granted, I only know the one song. I don't, I'm not a fan either. I'm just saying her vocal style and sound reminds me of her. Yeah. It completely makes sense. Yeah. Oh no. I I like, I like concrete blonde more. Oh yeah. Even though I think my cousin may have jammed with four non blondes at one point. I could be wrong about that, but I thought she did. Anyway, I, I won't take any more time. Like I said, by far, this was my favorite on the album because it is so dark and haunting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I, you know, this was a chilled out tune and it continues in that vein of the two before it. I like the chimey guitar solo on this song. Some of the guitar tones on this kind of reminded me of the Colts love album Hmm. when they were still goth. You know, yeah, they were still semi-goth and they, they really didn't have the thick tones that came when Rick Rubin produced Electric for them. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously a lost relationship. I, I get the attitude. I didn't, I, I kind of really, I kind of don't like when she goes into the, like almost like this spoken word uh-huh. kind of thing. You know, I feel like it's, you know... I want to hear her sing because she's got a beautiful voice, you know, mm-hmm. and I get like what she's conveying and you're going to use your voice in the way that you feel like, okay, I want to convey this emotion or this, you know, it's not always going to be beautiful. Right. So mm-hmm. I get that. I just, I prefer when she's singing and, you know, 
vocalizing in a way that's more melodic. If it was a metal album, that would have been the growly part. So yeah, and you know how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why I think that's why I like this song so much is because she's not singing per se, because she's not dominating the song with her vocals. Mm-hmm. Because there's really not much to the song. Everyone plays a small part of it. It's in the pocket. It and it, everyone's small part makes the whole thing, but everyone's bit itself it's not like we're listening to rock and roll from led zeppelin where if we took <laughs> everybody out and just listen to the drum track your head would just be like thumping you know or the guitar would just be big everyone's parts really small in this and it all fits perfectly and so i i get what you're saying tr but i feel like if she was singing she might be over singing then even without trying because there's not much well, to the song right you wouldn't get this it wouldn't convey the same thing right so and it's so she's using it you know she's painting with a different brush here and i get that and it and and that's what's required for the song to convey what she wants i guess i just i prefer when she's singing like caroline or you know darkening of the light where you know it's like this melodic thing and her voice is really beautiful but uh-huh. yeah but maybe she's it. maybe this is in character she's like we were saying she's past whatever issue she's dealing with now Mm. And now she's calm. And yeah. If, if right. she was singing, maybe it, was, it would be that she was being frantic or frantic maybe. or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Whatever. It's well, cool. As like we'll come to the... see, she's not over it yet. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> stay on target. It's yeah. cool they put this in the middle of the album because it's a nice piece to have to now do something different on the album. Uh-huh. You know, so. Yeah. So track six, Days and Days. I always think that I don't like this song and then I hear it and I go, Oh yeah, I do. (laughs) And we start getting heavier again with this one. And it starts with a nice groove and builds up to the chorus. And I love the vocal phrasing on the verse, which TR is probably going to say, it's just like the last one, only faster. (laughs) Cause she's just, she's almost rapping. (laughs) She's like talking really fast, but I don't know. It just, it gives it an intensity. It's intense and it blends so well with the music before kicking back into the wild abandon of the chorus days and days, you know, it's a banger. Yeah, I guess I would agree. Although again, you know, it's a lot of spoken word. And like I say, it seems like a waste of her voice, you know, like there's a lot of words to fit in there. <laughs> it's true. And I almost felt like it was like a talking head song or something. It was like quirky like that, where it's like, you know, where she's rattling off all these words and I get, you know, that's what the song is. But again, I just, I felt like, okay, yeah, she's talking through this. And I, I don't know, I I guess there's really no way to make it more melodic, (laughs) but yeah, but yeah, I just, I don't know. This one didn't do a lot for me. I felt like, oh man, this seems like a waste of her voice. I'm sure that's just, I got to get over like the beauty of her voice and just like, you know, except that, you know, she's going to use it to convey what she wants to in the song mm-hmm. rather than showcase the beauty of her voice. Maybe you should try the next album, Walking in London. Okay, maybe. All right, John. Yeah, so this one reminds me actually a little bit of this guy's A Poisonous Garden. It has a similar up-tempo, and I thought it was a decent song. But again, it's the reason why I think of it as the second song on the album is because it seems like it would be a good song to see live because of the tempo on the song. I'm not, I don't, I must not get the same way because I don't get as much spoken word on this one, but it might be how we want her to sing. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, TR, on that point. That So 
It's another good song. It's a nice change of pace from the last song, which had a very slow, dark vibe. Uh-huh. So, yeah. S- Speaking of dark, we're going to go to track number seven, The Beast. Hands down, my favorite song on the album, which probably means it's TR's least favorite song on the album. We'll find out in a minute. But it's also probably the heaviest and darkest song, I think. This song is a metaphor likening love to a monster in the dark looking to consume its next victim. This is one of those songs you go to after a breakup. When I said she clearly isn't over it yet, this is what I meant. Uh, it's chicken soup for the broken heart. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's a banger to boot, but check out the lyrics for this one. It's clever, and it also briefly returns to the vampire theme. And I just absolutely love this song. I cannot overstate that. So tear it up here. Here's no dude. This is like, this was the most fun song for me on this album because this was the most, this was the most Judas priest like song on the album. (laughs) And I honestly, I'd like to hear priest make this even more sinister because like the beat and the lyrics are very priest like. You know, it's, it's, it's like a metal like song, man. It is it, it, like if it was like a little harder and like the guitar tone was like a little more like metally, this would be like a priest tune. Mm-hmm. Like if you listen to these lyrics, it's just like in the way she delivers it, it. It's like, yeah. And, and the, you know, the guitar tone is there. Like it, it, it pays off. And so anyway, this was like the most, I, I don't know. This was the most like, <laughs> to me was like the most, metal song on the album if you will yeah and i just like felt like yeah you know it it felt like a priest tune to me which i i know is probably ridiculous but but that that's kind of what i heard when i listened to this song but these lyrics are like crazy you know yeah but it's no different than any kind of priest song where like you know he's like i could hear halford just completely embodying like what she's saying and she delivers it very well. Like her delivery on this is really good. I I think Halford would even take it another step further. Yeah. I could totally hear him doing this. Yeah. I have to quote, I have to quote some of the lyrics because I just have to. Yeah. Love it. Love is a poet. Love sings the songs pointing his finger. You follow along. Voices are calling. The monster wants out of you. Pause you and claws you. You try not to fall. Love is the leech sucking you up. Love is a vampire drunk on your blood. Love is the beast that will tear out your heart, hungrily lick it, and painfully pick it apart. This would be, how how, wait, how relevant many songs, is how many songs on Turbo would you replace with that song? True, <laughs> but yeah, I, I could totally hear Halford singing that. Yeah. All right. John. John doesn't seem amused. <laughs> no, you just mentioned Turbo, and that album sucks. I know, and so. that's why this would be better than that. <laughs> Everything's better than Turbo and Ram It Down. There's like three good songs on those two albums. I know. I was going to say, I'm don't saying. you knock on Blood Red Skies. That song's cool. Okay, yes. Ram It Down, Out in the Cold is cool. Out in Cold is cool. Turbo Lover's a cool tune. It's just I'm tired of it. Mm-hmm. Locked In's okay. You know, especially at the end of the month, about my private property or anything. <laughs> we don't you know. need no, 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 no parental yeah. guidance here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're all going to rock around the world. Uh, so no, I was listening to the same song again. And I don't know, maybe with two songs, in, you know, because the previous song also reminded me of a, song, a, a previous song on the album. So I don't know. For some reason, I think 
get as much out of it as you guys. And that's not to say that it's not a good song. It is. I didn't dislike one song on this album. And what I like about the album is that the first time I listened to it, I didn't dislike anything. I liked most of it. Second time, those songs sounded, you know, like, oh, I remember this. And then the third time, it's like, I know all these songs. So I think that's a testament to the album. It's really easy to to pick up on this Mm -hmm. and and to digest it. So it might have just been the one time I'm not... I'm not in synchronicity with myself as I'm listening, you know, it's real easy to get distracted on something or to like something so much prior to it that after you're like, Oh wow. It's not holding up for me again. I like the song. It just didn't catch me as much as you guys. All right. That's fair. So track eight is lullaby. After the intensity and drama of the beast lullaby brings things back down to a slower Caroline level of chill. So I'm going to guess that TR liked this one. Where the beast was scary and dangerous, uh uh-oh, Lullaby brings back a warm sense of comfort. A warm Snuggie, one might say. A lyrical Snuggie. I like it. (laughs) It's a cute song. You know, it's all right. I like it, but not one of my faves. TR stole my notes via Jay for this one. (laughs) Because, and I'm glad you mentioned it earlier, TR. I got a cult vibe from the love album on this song a little bit too. I, yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that a couple of songs prior to that, just a little bit, just a little touch of that. Um, I'm with you, George. I mean, it's, it's a decent song. I, to me, I just was like, this is a straight up ballad for them. Yeah. It's nothing wrong with it. It's nothing. No, I wouldn't call it filler. It's just oh, not at all. You know, no, and I, I, w- I would, I cannot read you at all today. No. Yeah. So it reminded me just one last thing of I don't need a hero in a sense. It's structurally written like it. There's not much to the song. It's not overcomplicated. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it does it. You do drop pretty far in terms of the intensity level from the beast. So I thought it was all right. Yeah. All right. What's so, the problem here? Yeah. I, this song just does not pay off. I, I don't know. The verses were boring. It's okay. It, it had a very, so John, you talked about earlier in the album, like when you hear the song, you know, oh yeah, this is from eight, late eighties, early nineties. Like just this song to me was that on this album. Like it was the most like of its time to me out of all the songs on this album. Um, it reminded me like, and I know this isn't, <laughs> it just, you're going to laugh because like it has nothing to do with this. But like it made me think of like all these early '90s bands like School of Fish and like all these other bands that had like these one-hit wonders, and they all sounded like this song. And I I don't know I just I found it like I found this song just boring and it doesn't pay off for me. Like I just oh. I don't know. Well, I, I did like the solo section though. I will say that. No so, snuggy for you. I'm sorry, George. It it's all right. A, I'm not offended not by this one. Okay. So track nine is Joey and uh, John mentioned motorhead earlier. This is their ace of spades. <laughs> if you know concrete blonde, then you most likely know this song. I'm not sure if, if Joey is the guy that wreaked so much havoc on the rest of the lyrics of the album. I suspect he is, but if so, it seems like things are starting to turn around for the star cross lovers. When I saw them on the tour, Johnette said the question she gets asked a lot is whether she and Joey are still together. 
and I can't speak to whether they are now, 20, 30-odd years later. But at the time, she said she wanted to let everyone know they were doing well. And that was nice. I hope that's still the case. Anyway, despite being the radio hit, I still think it's a great song. So, I actually knew this song. See? Told you. Yeah. So the Ace of Spades. So when I heard it, I was like... So this is Concrete Blonde. Yeah. And I, what I was saying to uh, Jen about this album, when she was asking what we were listening to, I, I said, yeah, I knew the name. I just couldn't put the songs with the names, which is pretty much everything from 87 to like Ford till now when it comes to regular FM radio music. I can't put the name with the song or with the, the band. And so when I heard this right away, I was like, okay, now I know everything I need to know. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a huge radio hit because it was on all the time. Yeah. Heard it constantly. And it does still sound like this period, but that's okay because it's such a well-written song. It's got some interesting things in it. Her vocals are great mm-hmm. on this song and she expands them enough that you get her full range from top to bottom. And it's hard to argue uh, a song when it's written like this. It does stand out from the rest of the album though. Mm-hmm. A little bit and i don't know if that's a curse or not but you can always tell a hit song from a band versus an album that has a lot of hit songs you can always tell there's just one hit song on an album because you hear that hit song and it doesn't necessarily sound like all the other songs on the album it's like a producer came in and helped write it or something or yeah and and i'm not saying that's this case but you can always tell that and that i got that a little bit on this album Mm -hmm. with this song because it is such a and I'm quoting quotes when I say polished. It doesn't sound polished, but it's such a polished song in terms of how complete it is and how well written it is. So but it's a good song. Everyone probably knows this song. And even if, like, if you're like me and didn't know the title of the band name, mm-hmm. you'd probably heard it a thousand times. Well, Jay mentioned it on the podcast, uh, Metalhead yeah. Podcast Saturday. He was like, oh, Joe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a testament that people can still remember this song, even if you don't listen to this type of music. Yeah. So I obviously really, I like this song. It was very catchy. Did you know it? It was vaguely familiar, but I I think like, I felt like, yeah, I think I remember this song, but it wasn't like, Oh yeah. I I totally know this song. Mm -hmm. It was just, Oh yeah. I think I remember this. So it didn't really, you know, completely you know knock me over in terms of oh yeah i remember this and oh yeah i remember this is concrete blonde it was more just wow this is this definitely like john okay yeah this is the hit on the album Mm -hmm. you know yeah i can see how this was the hit and you know definitely her her, so she's emoting like crazy on this album Mm -hmm. on this particular track and you can feel it and you can it, it just it takes on a whole nother level of emotion and vocalizing that she's doing on this song that, that yeah, she, she alludes to it in other places on this album, but like, this is the most emotive that you can, that you hear her get. And to me, it reminded me of like a similar era heart songs. So I, when I, I was listening to the album on Kobuz and alongside of the stuff, they, they post reviews and a review said, this is a lesser known heart 
song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it reminded me of like, all I want to do is make love to you by heart. Right. Like mm-hmm. it, it had that same kind of vibe in a couple of places, not like the whole song, but mm-hmm. just like there are a couple of places. It reminded me of that kind of that, that era of heart and that, that tone. Mm-hmm. It does. But you know, forget about that. It's a great song. It's definitely well-written. It, it, you can tell it comes from a place of serious emotion and yeah, just a really good song. And I can see how that was the hit. I totally get it. Yeah. I like how in the verses and stuff, she's like speaking intimately, quietly and melodic, but then, you know, towards the end, she's like belting out, you know, Joey, I'm not angry anymore. And yeah. it's, it's just like power. Yeah. So yeah. Killer. Hey, I got one last thing to say about it. This song remind this album. Now I figured out what it reminds me of, mm-hmm. not to the extent of the difference, but of the hit song Genesis album. And then there were three, which is for the most what? part, a, a, if you let me finish, all right, I said not to this extent, but okay. it reminds me of this album because you have a full album of prog rock songs and then you have follow <laughs> you follow me. That's the point I'm making about the uh-huh. you know the hit song when it stands out from the yes. rest of the album. Oh, yeah, you just waited a second. <laughs> I know. I should have waited. Wait your turn. That, that was, but that was my wait. If people are wondering what I mean by that, I'm not yeah. knocking it. It's just it does stand out from the rest of the album. Clearly stands out from the rest <laughs> of the album. And but that's not a knock on the rest of the album in this case. No, this isn't I, like Kat- Katrina and the Waves. Remember no, their big yeah, hit single? Well, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, no, what no, is no. it? The Sunshine song. Whatever. Walk in on yeah, sunshine. Yeah, it's, right. the, it's the first song on the album. Yeah. It's like, that's the other thing, too, about this is at the back end of the album. And this is their big song. That says yeah. a lot about. It's like, wait for it. It, it. it To record executives and PR marketing, they're mad about that. No, this they're has like, got to be the hell? This is the first thing. Yeah, right. Exactly. To fans of music, this is a badass move. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense chronologically with the songs and where she's going yeah of course and but that's what makes this even better is that it's at the back end you very rarely see hit songs at the back end of an album Mm -hmm. it's just that's not the way they're tracked it just isn't and that says a lot that they were able to stick to that storyline and still put it at the end without the record label saying oh no let's rearrange this Mm -hmm. you know which is nice that's what I actually, I end up liking the song more because of that. Anyway, I want to go on. I, I, you know, I love that you, 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 you tied concrete blonde and Genesis together. And not only like one of the more obscure Genesis albums, <laughs> I love it. I'll find another album. This is why, no, I, dude, I'm, <laughs> this is why you're my friend. <laughs> and for the record, it doesn't sound anything like, and then there were three by Genesis. <laughs> Thank you. First of all, but there are only three people in the band. Yes, but oh, I'm going yeah, to get this, and okay. he'll probably lose it when he hears this. But there's actually guitar on the Concrete Blonde album. And if you're a Genesis fan, and, and wait, you know exactly is, what that means. Yeah, and there, I, I think I can hear a bass on this album, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so real quick, when Steve Hackett left Genesis because he was mad that he wasn't getting his just due and he wanted to do his own thing, Michael Rutherford, the bass player, who's also Mike from Mike and the Mechanics that you heard in the 80s, mm-hmm. he played guitar. And while he's an adequate guitar player, 
he shouldn't be a lead guitar player. <laughs> and had they just hired Daryl Strummer back then just yep. to be their full-time guitarist, they make him a band member. All oh, this would have been solved. Anyway, let's move on to the final song. <laughs> All right. And that final song track 10 is called tomorrow. Wendy. And this is, I would say my second favorite song on the album. It's an amazing track to end the album on. It's extremely sad heartbreakingly beautiful if you know what the song is about get to that in a minute it was originally written by andy preboy i'm sorry if i say his name wrong he's the lead singer of wall of voodoo oh and and jeanette actually sang on the original song she did one of the verses and like some backup stuff and then she ended up covering it for this album and both versions are great so the song, it's really like tragic and hopeless and makes me cry every time I hear it. So the background on this song is that Andy had a friend named Wendy. Grew up with her, whatever. You know, life goes the way it goes. She ended up a prostitute on drugs, you know, I think out in L.A. And she got AIDS in the 80s. And rather than die slowly from AIDS, she purposely OD'd on heroin. And when you know that and you listen to this song, it's just gut-wrenching. So, like I said, every time I hear this song, I just bawl because it's just so... And, you know, and, and then when she gets into the priest, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I told the priest, don't count on any second coming. God got his ass kicked the first time he came down here slumming. He had the balls to come, the gall to die and then forgive us. I wonder what he thought it would get us. <clears throat> Amazing freaking song. So try to follow that one. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody yeah, wants to go next. <laughs> yeah, this is about as heavy as it gets, right? Yeah, this was pretty much the heaviest song on the album, you know, lyrically and even musically, I guess. I don't know. It, it you know, it was just a totally heavy topic and i guess i don't know it's like there's nowhere else you're going to put this on the album right you can't put it anywhere else it's got to be at the end you can't follow it yeah exactly and it's too like you know you're not going to follow this with days and days right i mean it's <laughs> right. like you know it's like you can't where, where you're going to where are you going to put it you have to put it at the end and unfortunately, like, it's just like, it's devastating, like, because you, you come off this beautiful song of, you know, that is sad, right? Joey is not really all that uplifting because it's, you know, right. it's, it's really talking about somebody who has an addiction problem. And then, you know, you get into this, which is, you know, even heavier and worse and not, you know, nearly as beautiful as the song before it, but beautiful in its own way which is just this sad you know melancholy thing so yeah this you know i don't think i expected this after like the gang vocals and bloodletting and the <laughs> vampire fun in new orleans you know it's like oh yeah this is not that and so yeah this this album was pretty diverse in terms of as you go through it you know all the different kind of moods and and various perspectives and things that were going on and you know this is about as as heavy as it can be so yeah while not being a heavy song yeah just wanted to make that clear to listeners that it's not yeah the thematically thematically heavy for sure yeah exactly all right 
Yeah, TR meant to say it's heavy, man. It's heavy. Yeah, yeah heavy, dude. Yeah. yeah, I like this song a lot. I like the kind of ethereal, dreamy feel, which goes against the whole subject matter of the, of the lyrics, mm-hmm. you know, but I kind of like that about it. Again, you know, I'm hearing that kind of deserty guitar playing that kind of even adds more to the atmosphere. And so, yeah, it's this could only be at the end. Again, a, a great tracking move too because it's the cover song on the album mm-hmm. to put at the end and so yeah you should I, definitely listen to andy's version as well it's very good yeah and and i'm assuming that was written x number of years prior to this it was not that long it was like how ozzy did hellraiser and then motorhead did hellraiser like hmm. same it. time i, I think okay. it was within like a year or two or possibly even oh, the same okay. year it was not All like right. years okay it's no, it's a great way to end the song. And it you for me, I felt like I was drifting off with the album as it was closing. Meaning like it just you know how songs end? I think we mentioned this last time about I like how songs sometimes don't end it. You get the full ending to hear the band finish playing. This is a song you don't want to hear the band finish playing. You mm-hmm. want it to just fade out mm-hmm. and just drift off because of what you've listened to up to this point. So I like that they did that for this song. Yeah, it, they both came out in 90. So Wow, that's cool. All right, any last comments on Concrete Blonde before we move on? I can't say enough, you know. I love this album so much. Clearly more than some people, but that's not meant to be a dig. It just, <laughs> you know, it's me saying, hey, you know, warts and all, this is an album that means a lot to me. No, I liked it. I thought it was a good album. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely there were definitely parts of this that I really appreciated. That's all I can ask. Yep. As long as you didn't come on here and just thumbs down, this stunk, no. then, you know, I'm good. <laughs> nah, her voice is tremendous. Isn't it, though? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's move on to TR's album. So my album this week is Fate's Warning Theories of Flight, released July 1st, 2016. It's a relatively recent release. And, of course, for those of you that probably may not be as familiar, Fate's Warning has been around since the early 80s. They've had numerous different lineups, but Jim Mateos, the guitar player, has been on every album and is the main songwriter. And the early albums, I think they wanted to sound like Iron Maiden, but they became like the godfathers of prog metal. And... um, and over time, they really established their own sound, and they there's nobody that sounds like them and, and don't sound like anybody else. So their original vocalist, John Arch, left in 1987, and Ray Alder joined the band, and their sound continued to evolve over the years, but they are you know firmly in the progressive metal genre. So this album was, I guess they're... I want to say second to last album. Jim Matheos has basically said that he feels like he did everything he's going to do with Fate's Warning. So he, they, the, their last album they put out, Long Day, Good Night, a couple of years ago, twenty twenty. Yes, thank you. And and basically closed the book on Fate's Warning. They haven't ruled out touring, so a, a Fate's Warning tour might happen. But and really. I feel like they might surprise everybody in a few years. I don't know. Who knows? But like, I think like 
I don't know. I have a hard time believing that's the end of fate's warning, but uh-huh. because Matthäus isn't that old and I feel like, you know, he's going to, some inspiration is going to hit him and I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens, but Arch Matthäus. Well, that could happen too, which was really outstanding. And uh, that'll be another podcast. But <laughs> so this album again, 2016 starts with a, a song called from the rooftops which has a pretty mellow opening and goes on for about two minutes with this kind of mellow vibe, but then bursts in with a heavy but melodic section with multiple parts and cool harmonies. It's, it it just, it, it was an unexpected beginning to this album. Lyrically, it makes you feel pretty small when you have a lyric that like, there's nothing that time can't end (laughs) That that's <laughs> makes you feel like I guess there's not a lot we can do about anything. No point in driving now. Yeah, exactly. And so, but that all said, it just it's a strong song. It, 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 even though it has this mellow opening, the drumming is outstanding on that mellow part, and then it really like when it picks up, it just really propels and and Bobby Jerzombic, who's the drummer for this band for this album, adds this dimension of propulsion through this whole album, but then he can lay back and do this mellow stuff as well. And I just love what he does on this album because it, all of the people on this album are fantastic. Like the musicianship on this album is outstanding, and then and so is is Ray Alder's vocals throughout this whole album. So that's the intro for the, from the rooftops. I'd like to hear what you guys have to say. So this one for me starts off in typical Ray era fates, soft and pretty fashion. And yes, that's a generalization based on very little factual input. Zero factual input. (laughs) It was just when I heard it, I was like, Oh yeah, here we go again. Ray. Um, Which I don't know where that comes from because he's always been a belter of a singer. I know. I'm making fun of myself here. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is me making fun mm-hmm. of my my stereotypes and lack of knowledge of this era of Fates Warning because I'm a huge Fates Warning fan from the Arch era. But I'll get to that later. Like I said, it, it, but I could be wrong. I was maybe thinking of Dream Theater. And I don't know. They're the same thing, right? <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> but then halfway through the song, it gets all heavy, which is bitching. And I dug this too. I liked it. All right. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I think he's warm enough. He's stretching a little. Yeah. yeah. So full disclaimer, Fates is, Fates Warning is one of my favorite bands of all time. I know we all say that. They are firmly entrenched in my top 10. Oh, I don't say about that about them at all. Yeah. So, I, will, so <laughs> I will say that I am overly biased about this band. I will make one correction to what TR said, Oops. and I'm adamant about this. They only have one album where they basically impersonated Iron Maiden, and that was mm. their very first album. Because their second album, nobody was doing what they were doing on that one, which was The Spectre Within, uh-huh. and then it was followed up by what many consider one of the greatest metal albums ever made. I know George would agree with that. And that is what album, George? Awaken the Guardian. Yes. Which 
nobody sounds like, I mean, you can't no. find anyone no. that sounds like that album. So TR is correct in saying that this is a band that every album has changed a little bit and a oh, little they, bit. Yeah. And to the point now where this band doesn't sound anything like they did when they first came out. Uh-uh. No, they, so. they've evolved so much. And just to be clear, I, I, I said that they started out wanting to sound like I, no, I know, but I thought you had said but, the first couple albums. I was like, whoa, fight, yeah. fight, fight, fight. No, <laughs> I, I'm so no, I, I agree with you, John. It's true. Like they, they quickly found their footing and, you know, their sound evolved rapidly and yeah, has I mean, continued like, to evolve rapidly. It's, yes. it's a great word to describe it. Perfect yeah. word. So to the song itself, I absolutely love this song. TR and I were very fortunate to literally be sitting in front of Joey Vera when they played at Rams. Rams head on stage. In on Annapolis. stage. I was trying to remember which yeah. one it was because there's like there was at the time four of them. So it was in Annapolis. I knew that part. And it's a dinner seating type theater which was so depressing that they were playing there but they were so close to us <laughs> like, yes. it was amazing and this song was the song they opened up the tour with and it, like george said it does start out hey hi guys we're here and it's very <laughs> subtle and very kind uh-huh. of mellow and it's got some very tasty classy guitar work from jim Matheos. there's this great little drum fill to kick it off and then you just get pummeled like a steamroller just squashed you because <laughs> the the drumming on this album from Bobby Jarzabek and I'm and if you've ever listened to our other podcasts outside of me having to say my contractual you know Scott Travis has been in Judas Priest for 30 years <laughs> I I talk about Bobby Jarzombek all the time. I absolutely love his playing. Yeah. This band has been blessed with three great drummers, all completely different from each other. Mm. And Tierra is right when he said that there is like in this is like 1.2 gigawatts have been added to the band. (laughs) 1.21 gigawatts. He really does bring and and I'm not this the interesting is the guy they had playing them for the most of the time in the band mark zonder is an incredibly gifted drummer he's amazing and they did things that were completely different with him because of his style and bobby just brings power and technique without being techie if you know anything about metal he's not a techie drummer meaning he's not blast beating you all the time although he's blasting you with beats yes there's a big difference it's totally tasteful is he the uh watchtower guy his brother his is. brother that's why i thought it might have been his brother yeah ron jarzombeck ron, who is yes, thank you absolutely insanely gifted guitar player and they just so just to give you a quick thing on bobby jarzombeck as a drummer he plays with fate's warning he has played for fight with rob halford he plays with sebastian bach he's his longtime touring drummer and i don't, I don't even know if he's on the albums and he plays with george Strait. That's all you need to know about this guy's playing style. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, great opener. Right off the bat, the, this album is definitely heavier for them. It's very technical. Joey Vera on bass. If you don't know who Joey Vera is, if you know the band Armored Saint, he's a yeah. longtime bassist. What's the black metal band he's playing with now, George? Merciful Fate. He's their bass, oh, yeah. bass player. Yeah, yeah. forgot about that just incredibly gifted bass player ray alder's vocals are probably his best he's had 
in years on this album. The choruses are, are simple. They're short. They're easy to distinguish. That was gives Ray the ability to sing even better. And I will say this album for them, it's a prog metal album, has a lot of hard rock sensibilities in it in the choruses, which I think sets this album apart from their other albums. So great intro song. I won't say any more about it because I have so many notes on this album. And I really don't <laughs> want to take up too much time. And yeah. I'll, I'll get all that stuff out of the way so that everything going forward will not be as blabbermouthish. Yes. Yeah, for yeah. Me. <laughs> yeah I, I, right. I have to admit, I was surprised with how heavy this album was overall. Yeah. I expected it to be heavy, but not quite as in your face heavy. So I was like, yeah, nice. Yeah. This is a locomotive coming yeah. at, at warp 11. <laughs> They've yeah, hit plaid. So, so the, <laughs> I didn't see you playing with your doll, sir. Yeah. So this is, so the second song is seven stars. And this is a little more straightforward of a song compared to the first one. Lyrics by Ray Alder. He married a Spanish woman and moved to Madrid. And the title refers to Madrid's flag, which is a red flag with seven white stars. And basically he moved there to be with her. He got married, moved from the U.S. He's always been in the U.S. for his whole life. And it was a big leap for him. And you can tell that he felt it was something he had to do. And when you listen to the lyrics of this song, you know, I'll never be the same. Seven stars, destination, calling my name. You know, it's he's he knows it's what he has to do. But it's like you can tell there's like a little bit of apprehension. But like this is the start of a new chapter. And it's a love song in some ways because, you know, for him to make this leap, he's got to go for it. And I don't know, this song is excellent performance and completely inspired on everyone's part. The lyrics are inspired. The The music is inspired. It's a powerful song. The drumming, you know, propels it. it I just, I really love this song and it just kicks so much ass. I love this song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The ass that it kicks is so much ass. I can't help myself, but yes. So there you are. Yeah. I liked this one too. And if I'm not careful, you're going to get me to go back and listen to some of those Ray albums that I skipped. <laughs> Didn't you guys say that No Exit was kind of okay? Yeah, we can discuss later. <laughs> that was a loaded question. I was expecting outrage at me saying that it was okay. So this is where I talk about John Arch. Because, uh, <laughs> because I was a huge Fates fan when Arch was in the band. You know, mid to mid mid 80s essentially early yeah. to mid and when you know i was a fan of the band in the moment so when he left i was outraged and mm -hmm. left i think i believe he was fired and so ray had the odds stacked against him for from my side of the court when he came in i'm like you replaced my singer that i like you better be great and i was like eh. and mm -hmm. so when no exit came out i was like eh. and i never really gave it much of a shot so I should probably go back and listen to that. Anyway, I will say for that album, you may still not care for his vocals because he tried so hard to emulate John Arch because he was such a huge Fates fan before he joined the band. Mm -hmm. And you don't start to see him find his voice fully, I don't think, until Parallels. But you, mm -hmm. it, 
pleasant shade or not pleasant shade, perfect symmetries where he starts to yeah be himself a little more but it doesn't come to full fruition i think until probably parallels but and yeah. to be fair i went back and looked at the albums and while i didn't really listen to no exit i did like the three after that mm-hmm. to an extent you know there were there were singles that were good i was like hey it's all right so. yeah no exit's more in the vein of awaken the guardian but it's getting proggier every gated dreams is like mm-hmm. epic prog metal but uh, let's get back to seven stars because yes. I, I don't want to derail this any more yeah, than yeah, I'm going yeah. to. <laughs> and we will. <laughs> yeah. So, TR, you mentioned something that just resonated with me even more and about the vocals, the lyrics, and especially in the choruses, because I, the whole time I just kept picking up how simple he made his lyrics, because if you think about it, the, the lyric is seven stars, destination. You go listen to how he phrases that and how he's able to drag that out without making it like some operatic singing. But you almost feel like you could sing like Gray Alder when you're seeing them play this live Mm. because of how he phrases the words and how he has just enough time in between when he says seven stars and then destination. You want to get out there and sing it with him. I can't sing to save my life. I I lose my voice after the first song I try to sing. And I, that's the beauty of the song is that everything about it, everything about everything on this album is in the right place for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Everything Jim Theos did when he wrote these songs, he put everything in the right place. And I had mentioned earlier about subtleties. This album is loaded with subtleties. Mm-hmm. Bass and drums on this album, you know, the backbone of the band is so solid and so good. And it, you're right here. It shines on this song. Bobby Jarzombic is a beast on this without hitting you over the head with all these blast beats. Yeah. His fills are all, everything is in place where it should be. And something that they do really cool. And they have since post inside out, which is going back to the mid nineties is that Jim Matheos's guitar sound for me as a non-guitar player is, is my favorite what he does and he does this thing where he has these underlying melodies and then he coves over on top of it with this heavy prog metal riff he does that throughout Mm. this whole album yeah and they sound so different but they sound like they should be together and so the thing about this album is the foundation of every song is there and he just tweaks it a little bit for certain parts and i'll bring that up a, a few more times to just give the song a little bit of variance, but the song still remains the same. A little Zeppelin. There I was going to say, thank you. So it's a great second song. I agree. And it, the beauty of this is that it only gets better from yes. here on out. So a lot of, a lot of guitar on this one, I think more than most yeah, songs. I Bef- agree before and after the course, he does a lot of really cool kind of, I wouldn't say it's like, you know, melodic metal, you know, from the early 90s, but he has a lot of melody in his soloing right before Ray comes in to sing his parts. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the so much of this album is really melodic and very catchy, which, you know, it's technical, but it's catchy. And I think it's just a really good mix of all of that. So it, it scratches every itch for me anyway. Oh, yeah. I yeah, I, I agree with that. A lot of, I think a lot of things that I take issue with Prague is that it isn't, it's technical, but it's not catchy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying 
at all is no, like you're, that. You're 100, but, you're 100 but when I'm not a fan of it, that's generally why. Yeah. So, and, and, and I would agree this with does that. not suffer yeah. from that. No. Yeah. But yes. And, and, but there's enough technical stuff going on that's just loaded with technical it, stuff. It is. And, but they've like somehow, I don't know. They don't browbeat you over the head with it. Yeah. The, yeah. And right. And that's, you could say that about the drumming too, right? Like it's technical, but you don't get, you don't get beat over the head with it. It's just, it's tasteful and, and it really complements the song and propels the song. And so, yeah, I just, man, I love this album so much. Let's move on to the third song, which is SOS, another heavy tune, but then it mellows out kind of in the middle and slows down. And ultimately like, so SOS is lyrically sink or swim. And he's talking about, Oh, is that what it is? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so a lot of this album has to do with making a move and doing something. And, and this is no different. And so in this case, you know, it's just, okay. You know, you get like a lot of lyrical content about the rain kind of being like initially kind of a problem undermining him, but then it also acts as something that can wash the pain away. So you you get these two different looks at the same thing and basically sink or swim, you know, it's like you've got to, and we'll get to another song later on in this album, but it's just like, Look, you got to put up or shut up pretty much. And, and this song, you know, it's just, it's heavy and it it gets the point across. Interesting. Put up or shut up. So I didn't read the lyrics. So I took it as the typical SOS save our ship. In this case, it meant save me. I might be enjoying this too much. (laughs) I like that. They've certainly got a melodic streak, but they still managed to toss in a lot of heavy riffs. Um, but you know what would really spice this album up even more? The odd, What's that, George? The odd harsh vocal here and there. Just a little, <laughs> just a little bit of, uh, you know, a little, a little Tom. death in there once in a while, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom has gave us the greatest gift of metal ever. Yeah, but you're correct. That is also the entirety of You Suffer by Napalm Death as well. I know. I love it. With <laughs> one drum beat. <laughs> yeah. Again, I love every song on this album, and this is no different than anything else, and it's just getting better for me as the song goes on. It comes in with heavy guitars, heavy bass and drums, and like TR said, it then goes into this middle section after the first chorus, and there's this kind of almost haunting guitar work in the background, and that's all you hear, and then... Bobby Jarzombe comes in with this drum beat and it's setting this situation up. And then there's this weird looping sound. I don't know if it's on guitar or bass because there are no, I didn't notice any keys or synths listed on the album because I thought maybe Jim Matheos was patching something in or looping something, but there's some kind of almost like Joey Vera's doing something with his bass guitar to create this kind of moaning sound a little bit. And it's leading up to, one of Ray's best moments on the album is when he sings the vocal sink or swim, which comes up after this. Everything about this song is just awesome. And all the subtleties I talked about, especially during this slower part of the song where you've got this kind of melodic rhythmic 
guitar playing going on. And then Jin comes in with this heavy MF and riff. It's huge, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's these little subtleties that he, he puts in that you might say, Oh, it's just part of the song. Yeah. But he didn't need to do it. And most bands would probably really screw it up bad. And he did it just right. And it, it's symptomatic of the whole album. He's doing that the yeah. whole album. So it's oh. just th three bangers in a row. And I say that for a reason, because the next song we go into kind of changes things up a little. Yeah. So TR. Yeah. So the next song is the light and shade of things. One of the two songs on the album over 10 minutes, it starts real mellow, mysterious, a beautiful vocal delivery by Ray. The song is about a friend who had a substance abuse problem who ended up dying in Jeff Wagner's book, Destination Onward, which is the fate's warning story. Ray says that this song is one they spent the most time on. And the song runs the gamut of every emotion from sadness to pain, to anger, and even a little bit of hope at the end. The song musically passes through each of those emotions and you can hear it musically and lyrically. It's very powerful. Ray delivers an amazing performance. It's really one of his most epic performances and the band as well. Again, it starts quiet and Ray, you know, giving this beautiful kind of vocal delivery, but then it gets really angry and upset and it just goes through these various emotions of pain and anger. But then it ends on like, yeah, you know, it talks about, you know, throughout the song, he's, you know, it's hard to find a heart that's there inside. And then at the end, he's like, I know the heart's there. And that's just like, it hits you, man. It's like this song. And he even said like, it was hard doing this song because it's about a real person. It's about a person he cared for. It's their tomorrow, Wendy. Exactly. Yeah, essentially. And he said, you know, doing this live was really challenging because, you know, it's hard not to get choked up about it. And it really does run the gamut. This song is, I don't know, it's its its really an epic tune on this album. And I really feel like, it, and, and not only that, but like it's, it has catchy lyrics too. You know, the light and shade of things, like the chorus is huge. And then, you know, like I said, the lyric of, you know, it's hard to find a heart that's there inside just really hits you. And so, yeah, this is one of my favorites on the album. Mine too, actually. Ooh. Yes, this was one of the two long ones. And uh, the guitars early on made me think of Pink Floyd, particularly the leads. Gilmore-esque mm -hmm. kind of stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely the centerpiece of the album. And I think it was intended for that to be, this is a song that's going to stand. It's, it's the second longest song. It's not the longest song, but only by, what, 15, 20 seconds, maybe. Agree with you guys. Everything you said about this, I love the atmospheric start to the song that kind of feature a, a quiet ray singing it's almost delicate and i hate to use those for that word you know for a metal album or a prog metal album but it is almost i wouldn't say the guitar work is bluesy george you mm -hmm. maybe think now it's more like david gilmore which mm -hmm. this stuff is a little bluesy at times but it's atmospheric bluesy which yeah. is different right. yeah i, I heard different... that again later too i was like oh yeah more fluid yeah. 
and and I and I kind of like that more. And I like blues. Don't get me wrong, but it's different. It's almost like he's just sitting around noodling around. The difference is he doesn't keep noodling. He may, right. he does something with it. He makes something out of it, and it's really cool how the band kicks in. It's a very proggy song. It's not the proggiest song on the album. It's the second proggiest song, mm. and it just so happens the two proggy songs are proggiest songs on the album are the long ones. <laughs> I know cliche. I get it. <laughs> I love the middle section with the acoustic guitar. It um, it conjures up, you know, Rush to late seventies when they would do these cool little good. Gu- acoustic guitar interlude things and then go off again. And it just, and they're big rush fans, which is funny that it just reminded me of that it doesn't sound like rush. It just reminded yeah. me of something rush would do, you know? And I will well, say this. Yeah. And, and just to like rush, the, the sound of this band evolved, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are very few bands where, you know, their sound evolves so dramatically over time. And I would say, like Rush, this band's sound really evolved and their albums, you know, each of their albums has a different sound. Maybe not to the level of Rush, you know, when you think about like... Right, they're still in their lane. Yeah, exactly. They're on their highway, I should say, which means they're deviating from lane to lane, but still on the same highway. Yeah. I will say in in Fate's Warning's favor, they never put out an album called Hold Your Fire (laughs) and they never wrote a song called Dog Years. So, uh, 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 just saying. Meow. Just, just, Doggy. Just, just saying. Just a couple more things about this song. Uh, I agree with everything you said, Tier, about the emotions of the song, because it does feel uplifting at the end. Like, we can see to the end. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing a little bit. Mm. All these songs, specifically this song and one other song at the end of the album that are long, it doesn't feel like 10 minutes. And I think that's a testament to a good, well-written song, is that if you don't feel like it's dragging on, it could be 15 minutes and you still wouldn't feel that. That's a good, it's a well-written song to keep you engaged the whole time. Yeah. So, Yeah. And so the next song is, I felt was a really good follow-up to that because, you know, if you think about what happened to this guy and ultimately what happened, the next song is called White Flag another really heavy tune and essentially Ray's lyric is don't give up. Right. Uh It's a gritty, it's a gritty lyric. It's a gritty vocal delivery. No surrender. Don't give up. Never carry that white flag, you know, rise and bury your white flag. And it's just like unrelenting, you know, and you feel like in some ways it's almost a response to the song before it, like, you know, just don't give up, keep going. And, you know, uh, you know, maybe his reaction to maybe what happened there, but I don't know that obviously that, that may or may not be true, but that was the vibe that I got from it, you know, in the placement of the song and what it says and what it follows. One of the nice, cool things about this album is you have a couple of solos on this song delivered by other members of either the touring band or the longtime guitarist, Frank Oresti, who had been in the band about 20 years at different times throughout the band's career. Mike Abdow, who was also a touring member of the band in later years, delivers a a solo at uh, three minutes and 15 seconds. Frank Oresti gives a, a solo at around 342. 
which is pretty cool that it's a nod to the other guys in the band and they deliver, you know, excellent solos in this song that, that really complement the heavy nature of this, of this song. So I was hoping this one was a Dido cover, but it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, he's telling me not to surrender here, but I think I'm going to have to cry uncle and admit this is a cool album. So yeah, <laughs> I guess that's why that's you picked it, huh? I thought you were going to go with that, George. You kind of fooled me. <laughs> I fool you. You fool me. Yeah, no, it's a good tune. Agreed. Again, I, I agree with ETR that it's the placement of the song and the the tempo of the song really are a good follow-up to the light and shade of things. I'm going to bring Iron Maiden back into this conversation <laughs> because, you know, I like to make these observations that, See, nobody said anything. So you learned from the first time tonight, not to say anything until I finished my comparison here. <laughs> this is a Iron Maiden-esque type song because there's a little bit of a giddy up in this song. Mm. The drums and the riff and the guitar have a little bit of a, you know, dun, 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 kind of thing going yes. on. And the reason why I bring that up is because when Ray sings some of his vocal parts, especially towards the end of the song for the chorus, line you know rise up and bury your white flag they kind of rein the band back a little bit and let him stand out so that the drums and the bass are not this thundering kind of locomotive sound but then they kick right back in when he tells you to bury that flag so it's almost like you can almost sense that the person's giving up they're giving up and it's like nope keep going and then here they come with that full bull rush into your face again and i think that kind of really gives the song a unique flavor to it again a really simple lyric to remember and i can't remember lyrics i can't sing to save my life but i remember these lyrics and i especially love the last line you know when he says that rise and bury your white flag bury and hold your white flag and he holds that last lyric at the end and he just lets it like he spits it out yeah but he doesn't screech it no ray learned finally because he threw his voice out you know (laughs) X number of years prior to this, just let it ride. And he lets it ride. And it sounds so good. It really does. Ooh, ooh, let it ride. There we go. (laughs) So another great song. I mean, like I said, and this will come up at the end. This album has risen so far up my list from when it first came out to where it now sits in the Pantheon of Face Warning albums. And yep. it's because of this album is so good. This reason. So yeah. let's kick I'm it. I'm with you. Okay. So the next song is like stars. Our eyes have seen. And this it's a heavy song. It's another heavy song, but it's catchy. It starts out really heavy and driving. And the chorus is just so melodic. Um, I, I'm not sure what this song is about. Really. You get glimpses lyrically of darkness and fleeting things and hardships but whatever it is, it, it seems profound. And and there are these real syncopated sections. The song, again, it's heavy, but catchy and technical. <laughs> so uh, it's a mix of things that you wouldn't expect necessarily to be. Uh, and again, a melodic chorus. I, I really like this song. It, it's just, it's it's everything that I want out of Fate's Warning, really. So my eyes have seen you. I mean, like stars, our eyes have seen. Um, 
<laughs> I, I got it. <laughs> so while I think this song is cool, uh, this is the part of the album where I started feeling a little bit of prog fatigue. <laughs> yes, the you song is cool. A I'm not knocking the song, but I started feeling things were starting to sound a little samey. So that's the perils of listening front to back in one setting. So to, to be fair, I, at this point, tapped out for the day. And <laughs> after this song, listened to the last two songs the next day. So to be fair. So this is my favorite song on the album. Well, then uh, I should probably listen to that again. <laughs> no, it's quite all right, because this is a relentless album, even mm. The Light and Shade of Things, which is probably the slowest song on the album, that's not saying much. And so, George, I, I get it, because the technicality and the riff on this one, this is by far the heaviest song on the album, I think. When it starts, mm-hmm. it's the closest you're going to get to an Arch Matthäus song, I think, minus the chorus. If you take the chorus out of it, this mm-hmm. is very Arch Matthäus-like. It's heavy as anything, and it's relentless, and there's probably more footwork from Bobby Jarzombic, more bass work on this album or song than on on the whole album. He is constant on this. And this is another song I talk about subtleties. The underlying theme of the song stays the same, but they just kick it up a little bit in certain parts. Bobby Jarzombic will do a little more. He'll add a little more. It's not blast beating, but he'll add a little more. Yeah. Then they'll rein it back. You're right. A lot of footwork that he's doing. You know, and then the guitar... You guys can speak guitar language, but it almost feels like you've got the the rhythm guitar playing. And then he just changes where he is on the neck of the guitar to give it just that little bit different sound. He's still playing the same structural, you know, this song is still the same, but he's just changing the, the, I guess the notes or whatever of the song. It's just all these subtle little changes are in this. It's got a great chorus. Again, it's that whole prog metal with these kind of hard rock sensibilities and the choruses they're easy to remember even though this one's a little wordier you still remember Mm it it's Mm -hmm. still it's not like i don't know some bands i hear their choruses i'm like this is just garbage i don't want to hear this anymore garbage everything seems to be in place again you know so yeah i like this song maybe because it it is so technical without being techy again Mm -hmm. it's heavy it's just, I love the fact, I, I keep harping on it, and I'm going to harp on it again on the next album. <laughs> I love the subtleties of, of this, because to me, I'm hearing certain things that I like. And I come from the, the drum side of things. And while I never played bass, I identify with bass more than guitar, because mm-hmm. I've listened to the bass because I'm playing drums. Right. And I'm providing bass work when I played. And so... And we don't have even talked about Joey Vera that much. He's outstanding on this album as a yes, bass player. So. I agree. Speaking of drummers, did you hear about the band that uh, locked their keys in the van? They had to break the window to get the drummer out. Uh, yes. Thank you, George. You're welcome. Yep. All right. Song seven, The Ghosts of Home. It's another 10-minute song. And this time the music and lyrics come from Jim Matheos. He moved around a lot as a kid, and the loneliness and alienation that comes with being constantly uprooted comes across in this song. Um, it's imagery of a young boy's life broken up by various moves, fleeting glimpses of things that didn't last. A lot of the lyrics, you know, home again, 
home again and basically saying, okay, you know, I, I keep moving and now this is home and now this is home again and now I'm moving again and now I'm somewhere else and, you know, just getting uprooted constantly. But I'll say the middle of the song kind of has an uplifting sound to it, even though, you know, it's all these kind of lyrical things that kind of speak to being uprooted not having any kind of real constancy and the loneliness and not connecting with people and just constantly moving the middle of the song kind of has this uplifting feeling despite all that which i found interesting but yeah this isn't you can tell like this album the album is starting to wrap up and it's another epic song and yeah, this is this is another great song on the album. Yeah, so this is where I tap back in. <clears throat> I uh, I love the bright, clean guitar tone at the beginning of this song. It goes well with his vocals. And then the song gets heavy when Rush shows up. Um, <laughs> I, I got to say, this Matthäus kid plays pretty well, so he might have a future at this. I really like both of the long, epic songs on this album. It's good stuff. It really is. So no joking. I dig it. So good to hear that because it is a great song. It's another song that's, this is the longest song at 10 and a half minutes and it doesn't feel like it for me. What I got out of this, I'm interested to see what you think TR is that, you know, they start the song out with this kind of samples, you know, you're getting some audio sounds that it sounds like somebody's changing the dial on a radio, Mm -hmm. like hand radio. And you're hearing that it's coming, cutting in and you're hearing voices and it's hearkening to another project that Jim Matheos was involved with. And I didn't say something for the last song because I had to flip my page and I missed my last two notes for the last song. Mm-hmm. But you're starting to, and this is the part of the album where it happens. There's a little OSI vibe on this mm-hmm. in parts. And OSI is... Office of Strategic Influence, which was a side project from Jim Matheos that he did with Kevin Moore from Dream Theater, who had left, and it featured... See? Same band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, throw Mike Portnoy in there, because... Yeah. He was on the first two albums, and Gavin Harrison yeah. from Porcupine Tree was on the next two, and Sean Malone, mm. unfortunately, he's passed. Great bass player from the band Cynic. Stephen Wilson from Porcupine Tree sang a song. Mike Ackerfeld from Opeth is sang on a song. Uh, Tim Bonus from No Man. It's all these different bands in the super group world. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, it, the first album really was for that Matt for the, for that. And you're just getting a little bit. It's almost like, hey, OSI is not gone. They're just not mm-hmm. doing anything anymore. And there's a little bit of that showing up here, just in small doses, though. Yeah, yeah. like a just, sprinkling. Yeah, like at the end of the previous song, at the ending was like that. And it adds to the allure of the song. When this Mm. song finally kicks in in about two and a half minutes, I get a total Pleasant Shade of Grey vibe a little bit there. The Mm. rhythmic playing and the the beat from the drums and what they're doing, it has that. This is by far the progress song on the album. Yeah, and there is a lot of push and pull on this album. Yes. Or on this song, I should say. Which is very... Mark Zonder like drumming, you know, mm-hmm. and it's everything about the song's great. It's heavy still. Again, memorable chorus parts. I won't waste any other time to say that everyone shines on this album. And there's that. 
Let's just, I will say, and I love even the next song. I love it. Had they mm -hmm. ended on this song, it would have been more than fine to end here if they wanted to. I agree. But they could have, but in true Jim Theos fashion, he loves to add interesting closing songs. Just yes. one more. Just a and little more, just a the, touch more. The final song is Theories of Flight, and it's an instrumental coda to The Ghosts of Home, which was the previous song. And it's, for the most part, an instrumental piece. However, there are some, there's a female interviewer asking questions that seem very closely related to Matthäus's life. But it actually came from an art installation of a lady named Karina Tinker called The Differences Between Houses and Home. And Matthäus got the rights to use it, and it works very well, especially after Ghosts of Home, because the questions that she's asking are, it's almost uncanny how they relate to his life and the moves that he was making and the things that were going on. Uh, it's not surprising that he seized on this because uh, it couldn't be more fitting uh, to go with to go as a coda to the ghosts of home. And in the book, you know, destination onward, they talk about like, basically like how Matthäus basically said that he, he, you know, he felt like the questions were like a therapy session where you hear the question, but he didn't want any answers. So there are no answers. It's just the questions. Huh. And so I, I kind of found that interesting. Um, so I feel like it's, it, you know, it's a relatively short piece, but it's a fitting end to the ghosts of home and like a, an instrumental coda to that I think really ties in well with the song before it. So your discussion there made me think about this title a little bit, you know, theories of flight. I'm like, okay, right brothers, you know, flying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now I'm thinking flight might mean to flee. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, mind blown. <laughs> yeah. Woo. So yeah. it takes a little longer for my brain to blow, but it, yeah. oh. there it goes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I said well, more vaguely Pink Floyd light guitars at the beginning. I like the build up to getting heavier and then it gets quiet again. I felt it was an anticlimactic ending for the title track. That's also the last track. But when you mention it as a coda, that makes perfect sense to me. So I will go with that. Still thought it was an interesting tune. Yeah, it's, it reminds me a lot of Disconnected Part 2 from the Disconnected album that came out mm. in 2000, where it ends with an instrumental after just yeah. a behemoth of a song and still remains, which is one of their most epic songs. This song just has the feel of OSI across the board. Mm -hmm. It's very electronic, but right. then there is some great guitar based drum thing there in the middle, just short piece, but it has that kind of vibe. And Jim Atheos has always been interested in electronics and creating soundscapes. And he's quite good at it for someone who doesn't do it all the time. I wish he would do more. I wish they put on another OSI album. Yeah. Because they won't do that. It's never going to happen because yeah. Kevin Moore is a doctor now. Yeah. So, um, doctor. Yes. Doctor. doctor. I, 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 again, like I said, had they ended on the ghost of home, it would have been perfect ending. But for me to get a little bit of fates warning meets OSI at the end, I will take it just from that kind of 
very basic level, but to put it in the context, like you said, TR, that it is a closing song. It's closing this album out. At this, this is the final code. It's the final chapter of the album. It's the mm-hmm. final countdown. It's kind of thematic for the three albums we picked that all three closers kind of have a reason for being the closers oh, in, yeah. in their own way. Good point. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I just have a couple more comments overall about this album. And and the comment that I want to make goes back to Ray. There are lots of layered and overlapping vocals throughout this album. And in the book, Ray said that he worked harder on this album than any other Fates album. And to me, it's clear. There's an energy and an urgency to this record. The music from Jim, Mateos, and the rest of the band is super inspired, but it's matched by the inspiration that Ray put on this and the level of work that he put into this. You can hear it. If you've listened to other Fates albums and you listen to this, the level of effort that Ray put into this, you you can tell that he put more into this. And it's to me, it was clear because his vocal delivery, the inspired lyrics, the just the way that the marriage of the lyrics and the music it it just it's clear that everybody was inspired for this and i just this is one of my favorite fates albums if not the you know it's definitely top three because it's just a tremendous album all the way through and i really love it and yeah i'm glad we could talk about it today yeah all uh prog jokes aside i want to thank you for putting this on this episode because it inspired me to put the discography on my phone and and work on going back and listening to this stuff that i haven't heard so prog cool. nerd yeah it's me <laughs> i'm happy to hear that i'm glad you liked it george yeah, uh, good stuff. like tr i agree this is a very strange theme that i've come up with and i it's completely unintentional but it seems like all these albums we're talking about, if I'm going to rank them, they're all ranking at four. And I don't know why that is for me right now, but that happened on the first episode. It happened with Judas Priest, I think. I can't, I don't know what's going on. I'm ranking uh-huh. albums around four and five. And this is falls at number four for me for Fate's 13 okay. albums. Wow. It's an outstanding album. I'll keep it really brief. Everything just seems so natural and effortless which is interesting because they put in a ton of effort. And I think that's what putting in effort does. It makes it Mm -hmm. sound like it's effortless that they, it just, everyone's humming. This is like we said earlier, it's a locomotive. Everyone has their part to play and everyone plays it. Perfect. I think what also sells this album is for me is the writing was some of the best. It got, to a tired, not a tired sound, but almost like we need a break at some point, a little bit in some of their albums. Yeah. And it's not, there's not one bad album, even not a Brocken's not a bad album, but there's some, you could say, maybe they needed to just go on vacation this year. (laughs) You know, you don't have to tour. So I'll say this real quick. Had this been their last album, this would be in the pantheon of great closing albums for me. Yes. These are metal albums I'm going to mention now. I don't, TR, I don't know if you know this. George will definitely know these. But had this been their last album, to me, it would be on the level of Celtic Frost, Monotheist. Oh, yeah. You know, or Bolt Throws for those loyal. It's just, mm-hmm. it's that strong at the end. And 
I would have been happy had they ended, although I'm still happy we got the last album, even though it, it's a decent album. Mm. I'm still glad we got it. Whatever you think about this band, whether you like them or not, it's hard to deny how professional they sound and how classy they are. They're not wankers on their instruments. You know, Prog gets a very bad rap, and rightfully so in a lot of cases, for being overindulgent and pretentious. They tend to rein that in fairly well. And the final thing I'll say is Jim Matheos is a prog god, and he doesn't get enough credit for how influential he has been on the prog metal scene. Dream Theater rightfully gets pegged as you know the linchpin that got all these bands to follow, even though they're not the first. And Queensryche gets some. I think Queensryche is overly put into that. I don't think mm, I think yeah. they're I- overrated for that. And I think Fate's Warning is underrated for it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I would even even to you know to underscore that, you know, even Mike Portnoy was like pretty much, yeah, you know, we might be in that category, but Fates was doing this way before us. They wanted their first album, they sound a little bit like Fate's Warning on their first album mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. some degree. Just a touch, a little bit. Yeah. They do. Yeah. So and there's a nice relationship between the two bands because Kevin Moore's played on Fates Warning's albums. And I will say this is the only band I know of that's got, I think, 12 members. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe 13. They all still seem to get along to some degree. Yeah, they, they've they've all gotten together for, you know, they had the Parallels reunion. They did the you Arch Matheos stuff, like the original lineup got together for Awaken the Awaken Guardian. The, the Awaken the Guardian lineup got together. Yeah, I yeah. should say. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the fact that all of those guys still get along and can put that stuff together and do it, I think is remarkable because, you know, they're all still friends and they all still get along. So I think that's a testament to the fact that these guys, you know, care about each other and, you know, musically they enjoyed working together. Yeah. So that said, if you're interested in listening to something a little heavier and more technical, jump on in. Come on in the water. Fine. TR, I don't know if you, do you remember my friend, Robert, from the saloon yes robert used to say come on down baby like that all the time (laughs) so and he had just a perfect voice so that's right all right take us home john that was good yeah two good albums to talk about so far yeah real real quick tr what is one and two for you on the fates that's tough you got to know if you have to, you know, I'm going to put this at three. I don't know where all the other albums go, but this one's going to three. <laughs> yeah. So Pleasant Shade of Grey is up there. I really love that album. Me too. That's um, my number three. Okay. Yeah. To me, that's probably. And if you don't know, that's fine. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say. That's definitely up there. And, you know, Parallels is a good album. What's and number I like, one? I, I like Disconnected a lot. You know, a lot I of love people, Dis- That's I, number five. I, yeah. I, so I've never really ranked them. I really need to think about it more. Try um, it. It's really hard. Who is it number is. two? I am number one. <laughs> so number two for me, Awaken the Guardian. Yeah. What's number one? Perfect Symmetry. Wow. Mm. Absolutely love it. <clears throat> it's along with Watchtower. It's where you finally get to hear what prog metal is supposed to be. Because everything was 80s power metal based, you know, US power metal and perfect symmetry just right from the get go is just pure prog metal. So 
because like you said, George, nobody thought of Fate's Morning and Awaken the Guardians, the Spectre Within as prog metal. That was just considered metal. Yeah. If anything, mm. power metal, because power metal was different back then than it is now. So anyway, just curious here. Thank mm. you for trying to indulge that and then not yeah. being able to do it because it's I was so... completely incapable. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's really hard to do. All right. So we come to the third album of tonight's podcast. And for my pick, I went with an album that is the same name for four different albums from this person's catalog. And I'll explain in a second. We went from prog metal greats to a prog icon. My pick is Peter Gabriel, and the album is Peter Gabriel, also known as Peter Gabriel 3, also known as Peter Gabriel Melt, because he didn't want to name his albums for his first four albums, and he was forced into it on the U.S. distribution for the security album, so all of a sudden we have names for these albums. The first album, which was just Peter Gabriel, is now called Car, because he's in a car. Second album is Scratch. This one is called Melt, because the iconic album cover of his face melting. This was his third album, as we said, came out May 30th, 1980, recorded in the summer and fall of 1979. And the reason why I bring up the dates is because this album is like nothing Peter Gabriel had ever done before up to this point in his career. It is a combination of art rock, post-punk, progressive pop, new wave. This is, there's no hogweeds in this music. There's no (laughs) carpet crawlers. Supper's not ready. There's no knife. You know, there's not a musical box. You know, this is different. It's even different from his first two albums, which were more kind of rock based. Although the second album, he experiments a lot more. This is full on in a different territory. And I'll go as far as to say is Peter Gabriel and David Bowie and during this period influenced so many new wave artists to go in all these different directions. The difference is here is that while there's a lot of sense, it's not cheesy sense that the eighties was plagued with. This is an album full of layers, subtleties. I've brought this up before lyrics that really have you thinking he gets a little political on this album mm-hmm. with a couple songs, which he's not preachy at all. There's nothing preachy about his politics. It's almost pointing out some things in one song and then telling a story in another. So much so that one of these songs, which we'll get to at the end, became hugely influential in a certain country of some inadequacies, to put it very mildly. Yeah, we'll get to that, though, at the end. It it spurred on a whole level of uh, awareness that people didn't know or didn't seem to understand, all from a song and a very simple song at that. So Mm -hmm. real quick, like all his early albums, so his pre-So album, which everyone knows So because of Sledgehammer and In Your Eyes and that voice again in big time, his four albums up to this point all had a big hit on them, and they were all very artsy and different. And so like we talked about with Concrete Blonde and like I made the analogy of, and then there were three by Genesis, there's always the one big hit song and then there's the rest of the album because it does 
those songs do stand out for him because he does cover so much different ground. I'd say there's at uh, least two on here. There are two. That's true. I don't consider uh, the last song to be a hit per no. se for radio, no. but it is a hit in itself, if, if you want to call it that. But yes, there are two on this, but there's one very big standout hit song on this album. Mm-hmm. This is the point I was trying to make. Just real quick for pointing out some of his longtime band members are on this album, which makes a big difference because they've been with him for so long or in different parts of his career that helped create the sound. Tony Levin's on bass, who's a, a, a god bass player. Larry Fast from the band Synergy is his keyboard synth guy. David Rhodes, the guitarist, has been with him, it seems like, forever. Phil Collins makes an appearance on this album, which is really important because we'll kick into that right away. Robert Fripp from King Crimson is on this album. Kate Bush actually shows up on this album first before she shows up on the album. So, so to be redundant there, we move on. To the first song, Intruder. Something about this album is very unique than other albums is that the lyrical content in song titles, the music matches the content. And this is a perfect example of it. It kicks in right away with this big booming drum sound who happens to be Phil Collins, which is quite interesting because that big booming drum sound, which was discovered during these recording sessions, would go on to be a prominent drum sound all throughout the 80s. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just give a listen to Power Station and Phil Collins' solo career. Which I don't know if you guys have read anything about that. They stumbled on this gated reverb with the oh. drums during the recording. And it became pretty prominent throughout the 80s. Interesting. So the song is about an intruder. There's nothing more to say about the lyrics. It's about somebody breaking into your house and it's from the first person perspective. And it's got this eerie, creepy vibe at the beginning. And it's almost got like music that you would hear for somebody breaking into a house. Now this isn't like your bumbling idiot inspector Jacques Cousteau, you know, in the Pink Panther campiness, but it still has that. Does your dog bite? (laughs) That is not my dog. You have a bimp on your head <laughs> you idiot <laughs> you know so it's not that campiness but it has that kind of vibe with the xylophone mm-hmm. you know in there and everything and you just feel like you're with this guy breaking into someone's house and it's a creepy song because you wouldn't know that dude was in your house it's also a great song and phil's drumming on this and i've been harsh on his drumming in the past but he's so good on this song and it's very simple what he does but it's very prominent and it's a great way to kick off the album and it sets the tone for the whole album. So I'll let you guys take it away now. All right. Am I the only one that when you see the title intruder, you think I thought Van Halen, (laughs) not that it would be a cover like, like that's White interesting. Flag. I but, did not think of that. But I was like, Intruder. I was like, oh, yeah, Van Halen. <laughs> There's definitely some guitar scrapes on this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I said this had a cool beat, and it was ominous sounding, which obviously, being about Intruder, it would be. You know, I want to point out that I don't actually have a lot of history with most of the songs on this album. For years, I've always been, you know, uh, a fan of the Peter Gabriel hits. Everyone knows. It was only in the last few years through knowing John that I decided to dig deeper into his catalog. 
dig in the dirt, if you will, uh, <laughs> and become <laughs> entranced by him. So yes. I dig the album and, you know, there are a couple of songs on here that I really dig, but I am not as well-versed as you guys probably are, but I thought it was a great opening track. Yeah, this really sets the tone for the album. John, you summed it up. This is, it, it, it does not get more authentically creepy than his delivery in this song and the lyrics that he's singing, you know, it's just creepy. Like, you know, talking about, you know, he's going to slip through all your dainty things in your underwear drawer and like just really nasty stuff and slipping the clippers through the telephone wire. And I'm cutting off the phone so you can't call out and just, you know, I'm happy in the dark and it's just, and add that xylophone and it gives that kind of sixties yeah. like movie well, vibe. It's without... almost like, yeah, like a, like a, uh, almost like a, you know, like a, a disturbing circus sound. And, and one of the things that, you know, one of the challenges that he set to the drummers on this album was you're not using any symbols. There are no symbols on this album. And I'm sure, you know, Jerry Murata is the other percussionist on this album who didn't particularly care for this yeah it was a challenge <laughs> and i know like you know when you're used to using symbols you know that's a part of your palette as a drummer and you know he's pulling them out of the drum kit and saying no you're not using that i'm sure it was like what you know like what are you talking about like you can't just remove that's like saying oh you can't play these five notes you know, <laughs> I'm sure as a drummer, it was like, what are you talking about? Well, that's you can't a, take away like some of like the main elements of, you know, how I play and, and what, you know, well, what I a, do. Not to cut you off, it's a great point to bring out because uh, when you play drums that, you know, you have accents when you're right. playing yeah. and it cues the band also, you know, for certain things. And yes. it, it makes light of something that you want to put as a centerpiece right. so to pull that emphasize. out exactly it's real and it's a note thing too you know when you're counting that's going to hit on a certain point yeah, yeah. Yes. without a without a hi-hat how do you keep track well, of you timing it all i mean when I, when I play drums the hi-hat ties everything together yeah so now yeah. you're on now you're on your floor tom you know doing right that. and you that's know, yeah and it, it lends a much darker atmosphere to this mm-hmm. whole album because you take away a splash or a crash or a hi-hat or any of that and it just changes the tone completely and so to have the foresight to be like okay i'm going to remove this element from my album it's it's simple but it's almost unthinkable like like who would do this peter gabriel exactly and that's what lends this dark sound to this album and an intruder Again, it's like you've got these scraping guitar sounds and, you know, it's like he's creeping in and he's getting in the house and here he comes and it's like this nasty thing. And it's I'm going to get you, sucker. Yeah, it's 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 just like it's so effectively delivered in the way that he sings and the lyrics that he sings like he got into that space almost a little too much. (laughs) And when you listen to what he's saying, it's like, okay, you really, you know, you got into this and it's just creepy. And this is the lead off track. <laughs> you know, this is like, whoa, okay, this is where we are. Okay, this is what we're starting the album with. Okay, you know, 
I was, you know, like looking at it now, I, I can't even imagine the record company was probably like, okay, this is commercial suicide. <laughs> We're starting off the album with this creepy song that is that, you know, I just can't even imagine what they thought when they listened to this album for the first time. <laughs> yeah. And to see that, I personally think this is his gold standard, this album. I know a lot of people disagree and say so is, but so is his hits no, album. No, that's a hits album. He never got more arty than this. Oh, this is, yeah, this is way off. Security had it's, its definitely had its points yeah. in its time, but like yeah. this is even more out there than security in a lot of ways. It's this, just, there's, it's it, just, yeah. They're, they're different artsy. Security yes. is a lot more sparse. The, there's space is filled on this album with different things. A lot of synth work that kind of fills in gaps that is not on um, security. So we'll move to the second song. And again, it's another, from the perspective of a person, the second song is called No Self-Control. And it continues with this eerie feeling. It's loads of electronics. There's noisy guitar work from Robert Fripp. The song ebbs and flows. You get the feeling, you're, you can feel the person who has no self-control. There's an addiction here that they have to something in life. It's not really evident from it. It could be anything. But the way the, the lyric or the song ebbs and flows, you can almost feel like the person's building where they're going to lose their self-control. They can't contain themselves. And it does build up to a crescendo where that does happen, where the music, the whole band comes in and you get these heavy drums again. And then it just subsides towards the end of the song, almost like the person now is spent there's a relief that oh i couldn't control myself but now i'm back to you know i'm now i'm back to fighting it and the way the song like i said again use being redundant saying ebb and flow you can almost feel like you can feel the person's heart rate picking up throughout the song and then coming back down as they control themselves it's a brilliant song i think it's one of my favorites of his whole catalog and i like just about everything after up, I'm not so big on his stuff, but mm -hmm. that's like basically 10 albums, including all the uh, original soundtracks. I even like those. Mm -hmm. You just get the feeling you're in someone's mind as it's overactive and there's anxiety. You get that feeling in this right. and it's the lyrics are great. And he's really good at hyper focusing in on a subject and not browbeating the subject into you. And he's great at phrasing great second song and you're just like wow i really i feel like crap now after two songs because this <laughs> is some dark eerie stuff yeah pete seems to have a thing for mallet instruments on these first two songs mm -hmm. but he manages to meld pop sensibilities with avant-garde strangeness and it just works which to me is just sort of peter gabriel you know that's two sides of the coin there so good tune yeah i, I like the percussive synths and again, the drums are real heavy and low. You got a lot of Tom work going on here. And yeah, lyrically, he, you know, it doesn't matter, right? What he's talking about, he can't control himself. You know, I'll call any number. So, you know, I'll talk to anybody. But he's also talking about all kinds of other, you know, ways of kind of not being able to control himself. And this whole album is like looking into a disturbed mind pretty much. And it's disturbing just, you know, from the perspective of like, these songs are like, as you know, go through these songs, like, and you know, 
we'll get into each one of them, but every one of them has like some kind of disturbing element to it. There's nothing normal about this album (laughs) or, you know, comforting about this album. It's just, it's odd. It's, you know, offbeat. And that, that was, that's really what Gabriel was for those first three or four albums. He was odd and offbeat, right? Like his stuff was just different. And, and, you know, Obviously, even on So, there are a couple of songs that are a little bit odd. You know, he he never really gave up on that. But he became a little more mainstream by the time he got to So, and, and it wasn't as peculiar or as disturbing as some of this. Don't get me wrong, he had plenty of stuff later on that was, that, you know, was dark or disturbing or, you know, some of the stuff from Birdie and uh, The Passion of Christ or whatever, the soundtrack stuff was a little darker. But, but these albums, you know, were a little strange, right? Like these early, these first, you know, his first three or four solo albums were peculiar. And this, especially this whole album is a study on, on, on the, on a disturbed mind, pretty much. Agreed. All right. So the third song is called start and it's a short instrumental. Won't spend too much time with it. It has you may not think it's necessary in the album, but the way it flows into the following song, it just works. It just feels like it's so seamless in the way it transitions. It's this short instrumental. It's got a little bit of a jazzy feel because there's a little bit of sax. So our good friend Matt from the Metal Hoods podcast will like this song. It's saxalicious for him. But it's a new wave song too, a little bit. And it reminds me of David Bowie's song, Subterraneans. Off the album Low, which came just out in 77. What's that? Just I just read album? about that because he wrote it for the man who fell to earth and it didn't get used. So he put it right. on. Yeah. Yeah. And so it has that little bit of vibe. It doesn't sound anything like it, but it has that kind of aesthetic that is similar. And it builds and leads into the following song. I don't remember. Now I'm I'm going to stop there so I can hear what you guys say, but there's not too much to say other than it flows into the next song. I thought it was, I laughed because I thought it was funny because I said five words. I said pretty, but not super necessary. And you said, it's kind of necessary. And so I was like, all right, you know, throw up all my papers, walk away. I give up. (laughs) No, not at all. I mean, I think most people would say this song's not necessary in the album. I guess I just like how it flows into, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just because of how I don't remember starts. Maybe that's why I like it so much because it's so different. They're completely different sounding songs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, TR. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I've always looked at, I've always looked at this as you know the beginning part of I don't remember. Like I don't really look at start as like a separate song. I I, I look at it as the prelude to I don't yes. remember. And yes. so I you know on my little note sheet you know it starts slash I don't remember. I, you know, I don't really think of them as separate songs, but I agree. It cleanses the palate after the first two really weird songs. And then you get this kind of jazzy thing. That's like, okay, yeah, we're going to do this little kind of thing for a little bit. And then, yeah, you know, then you go right back into this (laughs) disturbing stuff again. So (laughs) it's like a little, you know, sorbet before, you know, get into the next course, I guess. So basically what Peter Gabriel's done is he's given you a chance to take a hit off the oxygen tank, uh-huh. <laughs> clear your mind for a second, because this rolls right into the, the second hit 
off of this album, which mm-hmm. is called I Don't Remember. And it's one of his bigger songs. I think it gets a little lost in his catalog of great songs because he had so many big hits after this album. But I would put it up there pound for pound, you know, or note for note with a lot of his hits as being better mm-hmm. because there's this kind of jarring bass rhythmic thing going on here from Tony Levin, who makes his appearance on this song with his Chapman stick. If you've never seen a Chapman stick, look it up so you can see it's hard to explain. It's a giant stick with strings on it, but like thousands of strings, you know, it's like (laughs) millions and millions of stars, you know, kind of thing. I mean, it's it's like 16, I think on there, if I'm not mistaken. I can't recall, but it's, it's, you don't remember it's, you yeah, don't, don't recall. Remember. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, thank it's, you for getting it. it. <laughs> it's tapped. You know, you play like almost like a piano, right? Like it's two handed, two handed. You've got usually with the stick, you've got one hand doing kind of a rhythm thing. And then you've got another hand kind of tapping out like a melody or other notes. And so one, one's kind of keeping a rhythm with like a bass line, And then the others are adding some flavor. Right. And so you finally get to hear that on the album. Tony Levin is famous for that. He's not just a, a prog rock god for bass playing, but he's just a great bass player overall. He's played with a bazillion people, but his two main acts are Peter Gabriel and King Crimson. The song features Robert Fripp on guitar, and you can tell it's Robert Fripp because you've got these kind of... There's no scratchy going on here, but there's these kind of just abrasive sounds here and there. But it's a catchy tune. Mm. The lyric for I don't remember is catchy as anything. It's a radio hit song, mm. but it's nothing like a radio hit. That's what makes this song so great is that it got tons of radio play without really sounding like a hit or a radio friendly song. So it's while you're being dragged back into this dark world. And by the way, when we say dark, it's not bleak necessarily, although there's a couple songs that are pretty bleak. The oh, overall man. theme of the album or vibe of the album is not bleak necessarily. Although we're coming up to one that's pretty damn bleak. But anyway, uh-huh. yeah, just yeah. my thoughts. I said here we have the first earworm chorus. You know, it just gets, builds a trench in there and just doesn't want to leave. It's uh, <laughs> one of the one of the songs that I knew previously. And that's a great tune. Love it. No complaints. Yeah, I- I my notes here again. Levin uh, on the stick. He does a lot of slides, and what I call squibs, where he's going, you know, like you're getting these kind of peculiar, weird sounds out of the stick that he's doing, that he does elsewhere on the album. But this is the first song where you get a lot of that, and you know, it's a notable kind of signature sound for him, and. Again, like you said, you've got this, you know, I don't remember, I don't recall, I've got no memory of anything at all. And just like this disoriented feeling throughout the song of, you know, I don't, I'm not sure where I am or what's going on. And, you know, that's, <laughs> it follows after like this in, creepy intruder and this, you know, I don't have any self-control and I, I don't remember anything. And it's just like, you know. Now it's Monday like, and you're in front of the class without your homework. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like, you know, I, this just this kind of like 
losing your mind pretty much like that, that everything on this album feels like that. And, uh, but you're right. There's like this catchy feeling to it that, <laughs> you know, it shouldn't be as catchy as it is because it's like, wow, you know, and I got to say, if you listen to that, if you go online and look at YouTube and you, you watch his 1978 rock palest, you know, live version of this, you know, which was two years before he recorded the album, he's got different lyrics and it's, you can tell it's a few revisions from being done. And I like the way that he ended up finishing it off on this album, because I think it's a much better song than the live version that you hear on that 1978 show. Can I just break in here for a moment? Because that makes me think of his forthcoming album or whatever it is. I.O. <clears throat> yes, I.O. I would like to know. He, what, he's releasing one song every month this year. Right. Yeah. Until it's done. But he's not just releasing one song. He's releasing right. two versions of the song. Yes. And I'm like... Is there a third version that's on the album? Is one of these going to be on the album and not the other not? Are they both going to be on the album? What do I buy here, people? Do I wait for I the album he, and buy that? Do I go out and buy both of these songs now because I want to hear them now? What, what is going on with this album, I Peter Gabriel? It's, it, it's been hard for me because I want to like this stuff, but I just have not really cared for anything he's put out. And I like a couple know. of them so far. Yeah, I don't know. He's been like all his music sounds pedestrian anymore. And I don't know if it's just because he's getting older or what, but I just it's disappointing. And I know what you mean, George. You know, he's got these different mixes. And the whole idea is like he's got these two guys that are doing these different mixes. And I guess he wants everybody to have the opportunity to hear how it might sound or these the light version and the dark version. Yeah, exactly. So. But yeah, I I don't know. It it's a long way from from you know Peter Gabriel three. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I I felt pretty much everything after Up, and I'm not so up on Up. I think it's mm -hmm. a decent album. Yeah, but everything since Up has been down. For me. <laughs> well, but with, with that said, up to that point of Up, you know I've liked everything. Yeah, I'm going to have that. to make a decision here soon because I'm going to see him next month in D.C., Shoot. Capital One Arena. Anybody going? Hit me up. We'll meet up. Mm -hmm. um, pull the trigger on that. But I'm, got, I, I'm looking at Setlist FM, and uh, he's playing a bunch of these songs, so I'm going to have to listen to him. Yeah, I, I will give him all the props in the world for not capitulating and playing hits. Yeah, there's only like five songs I know Max. that he's playing. <laughs> yeah, and it's all new stuff. And I, I don't have a problem with that. I know some fans get upset about that, but this guy's never been about, let me do this for you. Yeah, I'm right? not surprised yeah. about it with him. I'm going yeah, to see Springsteen next month as well. And he's even worse. He's only playing like three or four songs I know. Yeah. Like he's not doing Born in the USA or I don't know, a lot of stuff. You know, he, he's doing like, Dancing in the Dark, Thunder Road, and like one other one. Yeah, he definitely. And then he's just deep. I was like, oh, it's. I've never seen him. I like him. I know you're not a fan, John, but it'll still be cool to see him, even though I don't know most of the songs. Yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing him, just so I could say I saw him. But that's like me going to see the dead, and I was the only like <laughs> sober person there. Yeah, he's not you doing know. the river. Come on, yeah, what? 
And I saw, I went to see the dead just so I could see them one time so I could say it. And I was just like, I don't need to hear any more of their crunchy grooves, you know? So, (laughs) all right. So now we move into a very bleak Mm -hmm. part of the album. And that's the fifth song called family snapshot. To me, this is one of his crowning moments in his whole career, this song, because it kind of, this isn't new for him, but this is the song I think that exemplifies a classic Peter Gabriel type moment, which is him playing on a piano or a synth or keyboard by himself singing. And the song starting to build up around him to a big, huge moment, only to finish with him again by himself, just playing and singing. And this song is that song. It's based on Arthur Bremer, who in May 15th, 1972, attempted to assassinate George Wallace, Democratic Party politician, and kind of used that moment to create a narrative for himself to make himself famous. This guy realized that you could be famous by doing something like this and you'd be all over the news. You'd be on the evening news. Then they'd be talking about you in the morning. And he, Jody Foster might even like talk to you. Yeah. He just wrong guy. I know. No, but the point is there. He just felt like he had an, a platform to get his popularity. Mm-hmm. And that's what he used was assassination. Go figure. Anyway, without wasting time on him, that's the content of the lyrics. And it's about him. It's him, actually, I think the character of the song itself. And it's a little depressing, especially when you get to the end of the song. But the song is gorgeous, the way it's written. The buildup from him starting at the beginning to the assassination part in the lyrics, this, the band builds up and it feels like you're there as the motorcade is coming. Cause that's how he attempted to assess him on a motorcade. To me, it's one of his standout songs. I think he still does play this song quite a bit live when he does play live. I'll let you guys say more if you want about it. It's not much more to say other than if you haven't heard this song and you don't understand what I mean by Peter Gabriel's style here, you need to listen to it both on album and live because well, it's the same song. They hold different types of weight the way it's presented. So I love the stripped down vocals at the start of the song. His voice sounds great. The lyrics are much darker than you would think from the music. As you mentioned, I felt this was a little less avant-garde than the rest of the album so far. More just a powerful emotional song. Yeah. It's deep. It's heavy, man. Yeah. This is another disturbing song on this album. And again, you know, just like in The Intruder, where he assumes the role of this, you know, horrible person, he's getting across like, okay, I'm the assassin. This, you know, this is what I'm doing and I'm going to be famous. And, you know, everywhere he goes is news. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be the news now because I'm going to take this guy down. And, you know, the lyric is like, I I don't really hate you. I don't care what you do. But, you know, this is how I'm going to get my fame. Which is really disturbing. The whole, this whole song is just really disturbing. And, you know, there were also some visions of the Kennedy assassination in this as well. That, that, you know, get 
assimilated with the rest of it, which was, you know, very clearly a, a, a horrible time in everyone's mind to, to think back to that. And yet, you know, he creates this character and then, you know, draws it all back at the end to this little kid in a room who doesn't get any attention from his parents. And, you know, it makes you think to yourself, okay, you know, could all this be preventable if we had just paid attention to this kid or if we had just done, you know, something a little different in the form formative years of this child's life. And, you know, it's a psychological song where you can tell he got into this to figure out, okay, you know, where does a person go wrong? Where does it happen? And, you know, how extreme can it be? And this is pretty intense. The whole concept of this song is pretty heavy and very disturbing. And you're right, John, he played this on the up tour and he played it on the so back to front tour, which both of which I saw and, you know, live his delivery is always very intense. He there's an intensity of this of Peter Gabriel live oh, that boy. um you know is really amazing. That you know it's seeing him live is you, George. You're in for a treat if you haven't seen him before. I have I don't not. Know if you have, okay. Even now, I'm I guarantee you. You know, you know. Obviously, it's not going to be. I don't think nearly as intense as it was. Like you know, many years ago on some of his earlier tours, but you're still going to feel that intensity that he delivers on these songs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things as a live performer that he always delivers. And yeah, you're going to enjoy that show. I just couldn't pull the trigger because to me, like I saw him on the so tour when he was still playing some of these songs and you know, he's, I, but he was still doing lay your hands on me on that tour and, and dropping into the audience, which I still can't even believe. And that was intense. I just feel like nothing he would do now would ever live up to those early tours that I saw with him. So I can't bring myself to go to this tour, but anyway, this is a very intense song and live. It's also intense as well. Yeah, I agree. He's, I saw him on the secret world tour. And it was crazy. And even though that was, there were more hits on that tour, he still plays a lot of other stuff in there. And it's just, and the band's outstanding and there's theatrics mm -hmm. on there and it's great. So and I, I should point out something I haven't mentioned yet about Peter Gabriel, about his vocals. He has a unique voice. It hasn't changed much, most of his career. Mm -hmm. He's not a belter. I would not say he's a technically high end type singer skill wise, but he has a unique kind of raspy voice that mm -hmm. seems to lend itself really well to his subject matter, whether it be in Genesis or solo and doesn't deviate much. He can get pretty high sometimes, although I do think he uses some effects on some of his live stuff to help that out. But I think it sets the tone to some of these songs that you have this bleak, dark feeling, and here comes that voice, and you're like, "Oh my goodness!" Yeah. Oh, he anyway. definitely can. And and I, I will say his voice has gotten a lot deeper over the years. 
Yes. Because if you listen to the re-recorded Lamb stuff, you can definitely tell the young Gabriel versus the older Gabriel. Right. When they did the, you know, the re-recording of the live Lamb shows. But yeah, it's <laughs> if you listen to it, it's pretty clear. Like, okay, this is the older Gabriel. Okay, here's the younger Gabriel. <laughs> yeah. Not as many theatrics in his vocals anymore like there used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's flip the record over to side B and kick off song number six, And Through the Wire. Or actually, this is the final song of side A, I guess. I don't know. I have to look. I got to pull out my vinyl. Mm. This is probably one of the two more straightforward songs on the album. It's for the most part a rock-based song, but with his kind of art rock, new wavy sound to it, though. It's a cool tune. I've always felt it was an underrated. It's a very deep cut for him, but I always felt it was somewhat underrated. I've always liked it. It's got a nice chorus, nice buildup. Nothing so special about the song. I just think it's a a very good kind of rock song for Peter Gabriel. There's nothing super artsy about it. It's, for the most part, fairly straightforward. And it's got a catchy chorus, you know, that they sing and through the wire. Mm -hmm. It's cool. I like it, you know, it's gives off the impression that lyrically it's about a long distance relationship. That's that's what I read everywhere. And I think when you sit there and listen to it, maybe that's what it is. I think his lyrics are always left to be open ended unless it's like family snapshot, which is pretty hard to mm-hmm. not think that's what it's about. So I like this song, but I feel bad for it being sandwiched between the previous song and the next song. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a palate cleanser, no doubt. So, um, but yeah, good tune. Yeah, this probably is one of the more rocking songs on the album, I would say. And so I would agree. And George, that's an interesting point because I never really thought about it being, you know, sandwiched between those two songs. But mm-hmm. yeah, I suppose that's true. I don't know. I still think it stands it stands on its own pretty well. And it does rock. So, yeah. Like That's it. a little bit of vibe of the first two albums where he does a little bit more straightforward rock songs mm-hmm. on them. And yeah. So, all right, let's get... Some people think this is the behemoth of the album. It's not. It's the mm-hmm. hit of the album. It's mm-hmm. not the behemoth. The behemoth is coming up. But this is his famous Games Without Frontiers, which if you know Peter Gabriel music, you probably know this song. Joey... <laughs> up to this point you know you know if you think about it his first four albums he has these singular big hits mm-hmm. like salisbury hill on the first album shock mm-hmm. the monkey on security which is his fourth album didn't really have necessarily a big hit off of the second album i guess on the air would be the closest mm-hmm. from that one but not really most casual fans wouldn't really know it you know but, you know shock the monkey in big time or songs that I really don't care for. I like Shock the Monkey. I mean, it's okay, but I'm just not like, ooh, I want to hear Shock the Monkey or Big Time. No. I listen to Big Time for that little bass solo at the beginning of the song mm-hmm. <laughs> from Tony Levin. But, but anyway, it, I digress. It is, yes. Uh, we, it's easy to do because <laughs> I do it all the time. This is Gabriel's, one of his two big political songs on the album. And while it's not necessarily preachy, he is making some social commentary about world leader behavior and how childish they can be. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's a dig at Europe more so than the overall world stage, but I could be wrong about that. This is one of his standout songs. 
This is a weird song, too, because it shouldn't be a hit. It really shouldn't. He sings a little bit in French. He's got this, <laughs> you know, lyric of Games Without Frontiers. And then you, you can hear the song when you just think of those three words. I'll let you guys talk more about it. I mean, I love this song. Yeah, It's oh. one of his big songs, but I'll give you guys more time on this one. Along with Salisbury Hill, this is one of my favorite Peter Gabriel songs. Um, and probably the first one I ever knew back in the day. Not only is it super catchy, but as you mentioned, the lyrics are an interesting take on world politics and war. I don't know about anybody else, but I've always connected all the names in the songs to kids playing and they're like playing, uh, quote unquote, in a Lord of the Flies kind of way. I, I love a reference to Tibet. Everyone has a hill to fly them on except for Lin Taigu. It's like, <laughs> that was very cool. Yeah, it just, at the surface, it looks like a song about silly children playing, but underneath it are atrocities. It's his animal farm. Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, obviously, you know, one of the bigger hits on the album. And I remember, you know, hearing this on the radio quite a bit. I remember the video. <laughs> yeah. I have not and, seen uh, that. I should see that. And yeah, just, I, I guess I don't have a whole lot more to say than what you guys have said, but yeah, just definitely multiple layers to this song. And you're right, John. It's not, you wouldn't think that this would be a hit because like you say, he's like, he's singing in French and he's got like these kind of weird tones and you know whistling and everything yeah and just like everything it's just a weird song but yet it's very catchy and uh i i think that kind of happens throughout this album like these songs are strange and they're weird and they're disturbing but yet like they stick with you and somehow you know it, it's just somehow bigger than all the weirdness that that kind of it, it lives in yeah, it's it's really strange. Like he's a strange dude, right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. he was always weird in Genesis and all the kind of peculiar little stories that he would tell in between the songs while they were tuning up. He would just do these weird stories and then if you look at the lyrics to The Lamb Lies Down, it's like it couldn't be more weird. And then of course his first couple of albums were strange and had weird lyrics and more abundant than Burgermeister or whatever. It's just is such a good song. It is, but it's just weird. Right. And so, yeah, this stuff it's, <laughs> but yet he pulls it off. I don't know how he does it, but he makes it work somehow. And that's what I think is the most remarkable thing about this because you can't get more disturbing or creepy or weird than this album. And yet it ends up being like a like a commercial hit or semi hit. Obviously, you know, I think this is a pretty big song. It got a lot of oh yeah, this song like, for sure. Yeah, but like yeah. as an album, I don't oh. know. I don't know how it did. Like you know, commercially, uh, commercially, uh, yeah. Like I'm sure it probably eventually went platinum, but I don't know. You know, at the time, like how well it sold for him. Yeah, it's not his bestseller, but it's probably one of his. It was, a, it was a build, right? Like every mm -hmm. album, you know, he built off of it and security was much bigger and got more radio play with, you know, like you said, Shock the Monkey. Monkey and I Have to Touch. Yeah, those two yeah. songs. And so, you know, it kept building for him. And then, of course, so exploded. But, you know, at the time, like when this came out, it certainly did better than his second album for sure. The second album is 
a partial stinker a little bit. Yeah, I would agree. It's okay. There's it's, yeah, it's not great. So, did anybody else have a misheard lyrics of your childhood with this song? Oh, I get the lyrics wrong all the time when I hear this song. I'm yeah. talking about the French part. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that was French until today. I this was one of those things where growing up I thought she was saying something completely different. And I'm like, oh, that, clearly that's French for Games Without Frontiers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so isn't that, isn't the title of the song based on a, what am I thinking of? That There was that, a British TV show, I think. Was it British or French? A show where people had to, I had it written down, and I took it out yeah. of my notes. No, I, re- I read something about that. Yeah. Where there was a TV show. Oh, oh here it is. It's a European game show pitting international contestants against each other in athletic contests while in costume. And the, and the British version, I think, was called It's a Knockout, which is why right. he put that in there. So this just goes to show you that this weird, weirdo game in Europe is just as weird as the song and vice versa. The song's <laughs> just as weird as the game. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, to the second song that's pretty straightforward in terms of a rock song, and that's a song called Not One of Us. Uh, it's even more straightforward, I think, than End Through the Wire. Uh, I've read a lot of people think this is a down track. I absolutely love this song, especially the live version off the Peter Gabriel Plays Live album. I think that's actually a better version than this version. Lyrical content, it's, you know, pretty straightforward you you can figure it out without reading it but it's you know about how people isolate themselves in groups to exclude mm-hmm. others and it can apply to really anything and i think he touches on that in the song it could be race religion clicks whatever and it's the precursor to subdivisions from rush in essence because oh, it's yeah. got that same kind of content i dig this song drum wise because there's Again, the symbols. So there's a lot of riding on that floor, Tom, in this song, which is cool. You know, some people think it's a, I would say a throwaway. I think it's a great track personally, and I love it live. I think it's a great live song, but I think it gets a little lost on the album because there are so many other cool songs and other things going on that this one kind of looks mundane compared to everything else and how weird everything else is. Subject matter is not dark, but it is a little disturbing that, you know, people do form groups to exclude others from their groups. And it's a kind of a strange lyric. You know, when you think about it, you know, you may look like us, you may talk like us, but you're not one of us. Uh And so I think we can all identify that from growing up in high school a little bit to some degree, you know, some worse than others, but. Yeah. I, I really dig this song. I really like the lyrics. This is one of those songs where, lyrics can elevate a song that might otherwise just be normal for you. Um, you know, alienation and not fitting in with the herd. I'm always down for a song like that. And John, this makes me think of Sepultura's we who are not as others. And those are the only words in that song. We who are not as others and talk about a grower. Sorry. I'm on the tangent here. Cause I love this song so much. It starts off slow, and he's just like, we who are not as others. And then by the end of the song, it's this huge, you know, crescendo and, like, gang vocals of, like, hundreds of outcasts screaming, we who are not as others. Ah, love that song. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I... um 
yeah, I've definitely felt like this was one of the more rocking songs uh, next to and through the wire. Uh, there's more Tony Levin stick slides and squibs on this song. And, and you get another, you know, one of the prevalent themes in a lot of Gabriel songs is water. And he starts this song off with it's only water, water. in a stranger's tear. So, you know, I, He's always used water as a theme in a lot of his songs and pretty much every album has something to do with water on it. And, you know, this is just a single lyric, but it, it you know, it, it, if you know that's one of the themes that he uses, he manages to put that in somewhere on every album. So yeah, definitely like this tune. It's definitely rocking. And I would suggest hear the live version off of Plays Live because the closing, you know, when he's just saying no you're not one of us and it's almost chanting like it's just really well done and the song's slightly different because it doesn't have some of the aesthetics on the album that they can't do live and it has a whole different feel because there's more kind of synthy sounds live which mm-hmm. is both great versions okay so we make it to number nine we're closing in on the big track of the album but before we get there we have this very somber kind of meditative song called lead a normal life and if there's a really depressing song on this album it's this one without question because it's extremely emotional and sad the lyric is very short it's the music is written in such a way it's like no self-control where you feel like you're in this person's mind who's suffering from mental illness and it's Almost, you think of your yourself in, in times that you, if you've ever struggled with any, it doesn't have to be mental illness, but just to struggle working through something. It has that feel, you know, in this lyric of, you know, maybe they'll let me look out the window today, or it's just so sparse, but it's such an effective song. And I'll quote Stephen Wilson here from Porcupine Tree. TR, I don't know if you were at that show with me when he made a comment about sometimes the saddest things oh, yes. are the most beautiful things, you know, and this song is that this uh-huh. song is so sad, but it's absolutely gorgeous. And it really is needed to change the pace of the album from the previous three songs, which were more upbeat mm. Two of the three were more kind of rock songs. He pulls you back hard and he's setting you up for this final song. Uh-huh. And I think it's perfectly placed. And I will mention this song again in my closing because this song is reminiscent of another song that he wrote Mm -hmm. during this period that ended up on So that should have been on this album, but it it isn't on this album. So we'll get to that. So That's interesting because, and I'm sorry, George, but I I wanted to comment on that because that's exactly what I thought about on this. It's a pre-echo of We Do What We're Told. And I really felt like that was you know, what was going on here in terms of like, if you're going to compare it to another song, it it definitely seems like a a brother or a sister to that tune. I I agree with all of that. And I like the song, but the only thing I really have to add to this is this one starts off like the alarm clock on my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's, so it is kind of, again, you know, we're dealing with 
life at an insane asylum, right? Like this is like what, what he's getting at. And I mean, in some ways it sounds very sedate, right? Like it's very kind of calm and you get this feeling of, Oh yeah, it's very nice with the view of the trees and Mm -hmm. oh, it's quite, it it sounds actually pretty nice, you know, (laughs) but then, you know, it's like, Oh, eating with a spoon, they don't give you knives. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe this isn't so great. (laughs) Yeah. I almost got the feeling that during that lyrical part, the person comes to their senses, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. that moment of clarity that they have when like, Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. It is nice outside. I'm eating. And then when it goes back to that George alarm clock sound, which is this rhythmic yeah. synthy pulse, it's almost like the person slipping back into their illness. Awakenings. Yeah. It, it, that's a great example. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I forgot to mention, I thought the lyrics brief though, they are just, you know, wow. Yeah. And they're short and it's just like, ugh, damn it. Mm-hmm. So I need a pick me up. <laughs> yeah right yeah <laughs> not so, not this yeah. time buddy yeah <laughs> it doesn't quite deliver like that and peter gabriel good fashion he's gonna hit us with a sledgehammer of a song and to me this is probably his biggest song not his biggest hit this is probably his biggest song it's certainly his most important song ever and it's certainly his most influential song ever and that is the song Biko which was an anti-apartheid protest song about Stephen Biko, who was an activist in South Africa, who was jailed, tortured, and beaten. I'm using his words how he says it live when he, he prepares the song, and who died. And it is the story. Murdered. Yeah. We can... What? Catching my thought there. Yes, murdered by the police. But it became a really influential song and it helped shed light and awareness on apartheid and what was going on in South Africa. So much so that they ended up having tours to protest South Africa and their policies and the apartheid tour, which became huge. He pretty much was at the forefront of this. And this was in 1980 and those apartheid tours, I think did start to the mid eighties when they started doing that so and the song was banned in south africa of course you know yeah. and it's it's no different than north korea you know or russia or anything when something like that happens but with, with music so just real quick it starts out with a very kind of sparse it's not actually an african beat i think it's actually it's an african beat using brazil percussion instruments and there's distorted guitar and it's a slow build. There's a synthesized bagpipe sound in the song. And he's telling the story of Stephen Bigo's death and it builds up and the drums and the rhythm are what set the song apart. It's a long song and it builds up to the point of him chanting his name at the end of the song. But the beauty of the song is if you ever see it live, and it's usually the last song played at shows, and it always seems to be when he does play it. It is this time. Yeah, and it has been for a very long time. And I this really wouldn't be ruining anything because it's not like you can't go out and see this in video. But the way they structure the song is that band members, when he finishes singing the final lyric, he walks off stage. He's done for the night. And then each band member leaves the stage to the point where it's just the drums at the end. Mm. And then 
the drummer walks off and then it's just the, you know, patch coming through of the electronic synthy drums. Mm-hmm. It's just a beautiful song. It's heart wrenching. And, well, and, and the audience carries on, right? I yes. Mean, that's and, the whole thing, right? The, the audience keeps singing. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a little, a song that is, uh, I always made me wonder if you two use that mm-hmm. as inspiration for the song 40. Now they claim they wrote this song at the last second in the studio and it's based on Psalm 40 from the Bible. But it's hard to argue or to not see the similarities in the well, song structures and how they use it in concerts. Exactly. The live versions of the that's exactly what they do on 40 is they one by one leave the stage. And the crowd's still singing. And the cloud, yeah, exactly. It's very similar. You know, so it is the hallmark of his career. And it's obviously the hallmark of this album. And if you don't know it, you probably should hear it one time. Hear it once on the studio and then definitely go look for it live because they are two completely different beasts of a song and they're both effective yeah definitely a very emotional song and the eyes of the world are watching now i'm a sucker for songs like these you know martyrs and inspiring through tragedy and blah 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 whatever but yeah it's a great closer to the album yeah definitely real intense and you know, I was, I was reading up on this a little and, you know, the guys at Atlantic were like, you know, what are the, what are American people going to care about a song <laughs> of, of like this? You know, who's going to care? And it ended up, you know, being a lot of people did care. Right. And it, and it really started a movement in terms of like political songs that, you know, made a difference. And, and again, it's one of those things like the rest of this album where, you know, you wouldn't think this would be a hit, but it's, it definitely, you know, is very powerful. And this gets back to some of the intensity of Peter Gabriel, you know, the, some of the songs that he delivers with an intensity and you feel that intensity. And John, you're right. When it comes to the live production of this, just seeing how he stands on stage and the motions and the gestures that he does in the live show adds a level of power and intensity to this song that, you know, you don't get just listening to the record, you know, when you can see him actually, you know, performing the song, you you get a whole nother level of intensity from this and that's true of a lot of his songs when, you know, in the live shows, he delivers a level of intensity that, that is, you know, I won't say it's not there on the album cause there is some intensity there, but like, it just takes it to another level when you can see what he's doing and you're pre- physically present and you feel it when mm-hmm. you're there. And that I think is a very powerful thing to Definitely. be sure. Yeah. Yeah. You'll it'll be worth it for you, George, at the show, even if you're not seeing a lot of his songs that you know, to end with that song will be worth the wait to get to that song. So nice. So I'll just finish a couple real quick thoughts. You know, this is our longest podcast yet. To me, this is Peter Gabriel's crowning achievement in his career. It's I hate to use the word masterpiece because I think people throw it around like awesome, which I throw around all the time. <laughs> but it really is, to me, it is his best album, not even close. And I know people will say, again, so, but 
these are different types of hits on this album and I think they they work better. This album, and I recently put my list together, it's in my top 20 all time for all albums, all genres across the board. Wow. However, had he included, we do it, we're told Milgram's 37, which is on So on this album, it would push to the top 10 for me because mm-hmm. that song fits this album perfectly. Yeah. And while I'm glad it's on So because it changes the dynamic of the overall vibe of the album, I really wish it was Peter Gabriel, also known as Peter Gabriel 3, <laughs> also known as Peter Gabriel Melt. So anyone else? Any other thoughts? Are we done? Just, you know, I would definitely say it's one of my, probably my, probably is my favorite one by him album. It's the one that I've been reaching for the most the last few years. So, yeah. And I look forward to seeing him next month and maybe I'll report back on next episode. There we go. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hells. Yes. All right. Yeah. So there you go. We went longer than I thought we would with Peter Gabriel, but it is what it is. Yeah, All right. I think so, we spent the right amount of time on each of these albums. I got an album recommendation real quick. Oh, that's right. I got two, actually. I'll do them really quick. I mentioned this one on the Metalheads podcast that we recorded on Saturday. The album is called Echoes of Journeys Past. The band name is Flight. They're a Norwegian hard rock, proto-metal, progressive rock band. They've got the whole retro sound going without being retro because it's modern. If you're into this kind of 80s traditional metal sound with some 70s influence give them a spin i think the best way to describe them is they got that kind of 70s blister cult sound blister cult had all those things they were proto metal hard rock they were a little proggy but none of the campiness like blister cult blister cult had some campy stuff going on if you want to find them they're on Bandcamp. just look up the name again the name is flight but if you need to find them because flight's hard to find it's dying victims productions is the label okay so the other one real quick drag is a crawl yes journey to the black fortress this is our good friend keith d of arctic sleep unearthed elf and about 452 other bands who's on the metal Heads podcast on saturday as our guest who's been on several times yeah it's, check out episode 141 of metalheads podcast to hear him yes we had a great time with keith discussing this album based on the juggernaut sci-fi fantasy, actually fantasy film. Actually a, piece of, actually a piece of garbage. It's uh, the whole traditional eighties metal sound without all the cheesy of the eighties, which I thought was really well done. It's epic. It's fantasy metal. It's crawl metal. So <laughs> the album is camp. much better than the movie. Yes. Significantly. So that's it. Recommendations. If you want to check out some stuff, I agree. I endorse those recommendations. <laughs> All right. Well, if there's nothing else, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Peace. Rock on. <laughs>